Hey everybody, this is Jeff. And this is Richard. Before we start the episode proper, we've got a special kind of alert or announcement we want to share with you on this episode. We did lose a portion of this when we were originally recording. We lost the section where we talk about the alligator people, and we've had to recreate it actually a couple of times. Uh, Some technical software glitches that we're working through. You might notice a slight difference in the audio quality because, well, we were using two microphones when we recorded the first time and only one the second. Just a heads up, we hope that this doesn't deter from your enjoyment of the episode, and we are certainly working through the technical aspects on our end, but sit back and enjoy this episode of the Classic Horse Club podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. (laughs) Beware the house upon the hill. Beware the child so free. Behind her smiles and urge to kill. Beware the spider baby. stage musical based on the movie Spider Baby. And that song was the title song, Spider Baby, was recorded in 2010, soundtrack to Spider Baby the Musical. Interestingly, this soundtrack was the final project recorded in Buck Owens' studio in Bakersfield, California. I had no idea there was a musical for Spider Baby, uh, but you know, why not? There's an Evil Dead musical, we have the, uh, the monster of Phantom Lake, you know, so why not? Uh, I'm curious. Was So was it a good musical? I mean, was it... I don't know. I mean, it was never on Broadway, but it did make the rounds uh, in community theaters and such. Well, I don't think Evil Dead's ever made Broadway, <laughs> well, but... I listened to some of the songs. They are reminiscent of Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I'm sure that's probably the basis for most of these musicals based on horror movies. Let's open this meeting of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is episode 27. Welcome, everyone. Why is Spider Baby the musical of any interest today, Rich? Well, we are going to cover three films from the legendary Lon Chaney Jr. We're going to be doing kind of the same format we've done in the past when we've talked about Karloff or Lugosi. We're going to take a look from a movie at the early part of his career, the middle part and the latter part. And of course, Spider Baby was really his last horror film of note. Yes, he did Dracula versus Frankenstein after that, for better or for worse. I know there's some love for that out there. I am curious. I I do want to revisit that sooner than later. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I do remember the first time uh, it was pretty painful, and I'm not sure it's going to get much better, but I know they've talked about it recently over at Monster Kid Radio. Maybe it's a movie that's kind of worth rewatching again, but Spider Baby really was the last one, at least released, 
And I think that's an interesting thing we'll talk about is that it was actually made four years or almost four years before it was released. When I watched that film, I thought that Lon Chaney looked pretty good for 1967, 1968. And uh, well, yeah, he, he was actually looking more like 1964. He was in pretty poor health by the time you get to the late 60s. And so uh, we'll talk about that later. But we're going to be talking about three films. We're going to be looking at Man Made Monster from 1941, which was the start of his universal horror film cycle. Then we're going to jump ahead to The Alligator People from 1959. By the early 50s, the start of the 50s, his his star had kind of declined in Hollywood. And so he was taking a lot of the roles he did in the 50s were kind of similar. He was kind of playing kind of the old kind of drunken curmudgeon guy, which I think probably mirrored his real life at that point. And he did have a little bit of a renaissance in the 60s. I mean, he did work alongside Vincent Price in The Haunted Palace. We chose to take a look at Spider Baby, and that was a first-time viewing for me. Um, me as well. And uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised. But that's what we're going to talk about this week, Lon Chaney Jr. Before all that, let's do some old business. We just have a couple of items. We first want to welcome new members to the Classic Horrors Club podcast Facebook group. This is our, quote, clubhouse for people that listen to the podcast. We share upcoming topics let people know when we're going to record, and hopefully start a conversation uh, amongst our members. So this month, we welcome Craig Wilkinson and George Patton. Thank you very much for joining the group. Yes, welcome. We continue to get new members each month, and I think as we continue to kind of get the word out there, I don't know what point will we hit a, a peak, or we have we hit our peak? I don't know. I think we're continuing to get new ones, so... Uh, spread the word. Let your friends and family know. Uh, you know, we continue to crank out one episode a month. I think that's a good format for us. We have a flow going right now, I think, uh, especially, you know, once you get past the holidays and stuff. So I don't know. I, we've got some good stuff lined up for this year. We, we've sat down and, and shared some ideas. So I'm looking forward to what we've got coming up in future months. And uh, this episode in particular, I always love looking at the classics and taking a look at the classic horror legends like Karloff and Lugosi. And, and, um, and of course, you know, we haven't done Lon Chaney Sr. yet. I know that's something we've talked about maybe doing later on this year. Welcome to the club, and, and uh, please let us know how we're doing and if you've got any ideas. We had a particularly interesting conversation in the group this week about Spider Baby. I had posted that uh, I was watching it, doing my homework, and several people commented, if you did want to call and leave a voicemail, we have a Google number that you can call. Uh, there's a three-minute limit, but you feel free to call back. We can stitch it together and make it sound like a seamless message. The number is 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. I want to say, if you've got comments on a past episode, let us know. I tend to think sometimes when I want to leave voicemails for some of the shows, I'm always behind on all my podcasts. And sometimes I, I don't want to leave a comment or something on a past topic. But I think that I probably should because I think that just keeps the conversation going. Yeah, if you've got something, a comment on a show we did six months ago, we still want to hear from you. Call in, let us know. You know, we hate to talk about horror movies here. So if you've got anything or want to call us out on something we said that was an error, which that never happens, yeah, please, please uh, feel free to do so. Don't worry that it's been a few months. Jeff and Rich, this is Jonathan. 
just calling in again based on your uh, last podcast, which I really enjoyed. I know you had um, the Bob Hope, um, the Bob Hope films, and the other comedy, which is escaping me now, of course, the name of it, horror comedy, I should say. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. Haven't gotten a chance to actually uh, watch those films, but I did get to see, and then I'll put this to rest. Uh, it's alive too. Uh, the sequel to um, It's Alive, which I rather enjoyed. Um, it was um, a lot of fun. You could t- definitely tell it was a larger budget on the screen, which I enjoyed. And um, uh, I recognized a couple of familiar faces, which was very cool. You had, um, um, God, I'm trying to remember that. Oh, John Marley playing Mr. Mallory. Of course, most people know him from his work um, in The Godfather as uh, Waltz, the big movie producer Waltz, that finds um, a special present in his bed. Um, I know you guys already covered that, but I thought that was amusing to, to see him in that. And then also um, Frederick Forrest, which I know him best as Chef from Apocalypse Now, the character of Chef, uh, who worked on the little um, the boat that most of the characters, um, the main characters, um travel on for a lot of the film but um yeah so it's a lot too good i i i feel like it didn't fully come together i think there was a lot of potential there um i enjoyed it but i feel like um the story maybe could have been a little tighter um but overall fun you know fun experience watching that spider baby um lon cheney jr and that was a movie. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it's, uh, I actually thought Lon Chaney was actually very good in it. Even though it was late in his career, he was, didn't, I didn't feel like he was phoning in it at all. You could tell he was in, seemed to be in ill health at that point, but, uh, really enjoyed his performance. Um, definitely had that late sixties campy tone that I think would work well in a double feature with, uh, whatever happened to baby Jane. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a movie that I had been hearing about for years. Anyone who's into genre, particularly and subgenre and some of the more obscure, um, stuff from that period, uh, have, has heard of, uh, Spider Baby. And, uh, I believe the, um, oh God, I think the big movie cast, I, th- I feel like Vince and Nick covered it years, years ago, but, um, enjoyed that as well. I did not get to see um, uh, the Alligator People yet, but that's on my list. And I'm now, of course, I'm blanking on the the other film. Yes, yeah, so you can probably tell I'm rushing through this voicemail a little bit. Uh, Stella's in the background. I think she's getting hungry, so I have to attend to her needs very shortly. Um, unrelated to horror, she started daycare uh, this past Friday. And next week will be her first full week. But she did great. Dad probably had the hardest time. <laughs> Definitely had to fight back some tears that day. But, you know, you know, we're excited for her, and I think it'll be really good for her development. Just harder on mom and dad, probably. But, um, and uh, lastly, I started watching Dark Shadows. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to hit, um, I don't know if I'll be able to hit Steve Turk's record, or record his four months, knocking out the whole series in four months, but... I'm confident I'll eventually be able to finish it. I'm about 30 episodes in, and, um, yeah, it's gotten me hooked. Um, had to get used to the soap opera style and, you know, the flubbing of lines and looking for the teleprompters and, you know, the performances. There's kind of a 
don't know, I kind of feel like a wide disparity in the quality of performances. Um, but I'm really enjoying it. And I know I have a feeling it only gets better. And of course, I'm, what, 170, 80 episodes from Barnabas Collins appearing. But I just felt like I wanted to start from the beginning just to get the base, you know, get the, you know, start from the ground up. And, um, you know, I know the story and there's probably dozens and dozens and dozens of characters by the time the show ends. Um, and maybe we won't keep track of all of them, but um, I thought it'd be good to uh, to start from the beginning. So, yeah, so far, so good. So, um, it's a lot about Burke Devlin right now um, and his machinations. So, we'll see where that goes. But I'll, I'll uh, provide some occasional reports and uh, see how it goes, but I'm enjoying it so far. Um, and yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you guys know how I'm doing, but otherwise I hope everything's great. Um, looking forward to this upcoming episode, actually very much looking forward to this upcoming episode because I'm a big fan of Lon Chaney Jr. and his work, obviously his horror work, Universal's Wolfman and uh, a lot of the Universal, uh, sequels in the forties and High Noon. I love the small part he had in that as well. Okay. Um, again, I'm rushing his voice now because Stella, Stella is calling. So, uh. I'll talk to you guys soon. Hope all is well. Talk to you later. I don't have any errors this week, and I only have one item of old business. I'm probably the only one that cares about this item, but I had brought up Elizabeth Pena last time. She co-starred in the Invaders television reboot sequel movie. Yes, yes, yes. I, I knew for some reason in my mind at one time she was a thing, so I looked up a little history about her. Uh, she was a Cuban-American actress, best known for working in films... Nothing Like the Holidays, Batteries Not Included, La Bamba, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Jacob's Ladder, Rush Hour, The Incredibles, and Lone Star. Lone Star, I believe, is the one I'm remembering that she got critical acclaim. She won in 1996 the Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Female, and she also won a Bravo Award for Outstanding Actress in a Feature Film. So that is Miss Elizabeth Pena. Let's talk about Mr. Lon Chaney. Richard? What do you got? Who is he? Where is he from? Lon Chaney Jr. was actually uh, born Creighton Chaney. Uh, he was born on February 10th, 1906 in Oklahoma City in the Oklahoma Territory. It was not yet a state. It didn't become a state until 1907. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Now, obviously, he's the son of Lon Chaney Sr. From what I remember, and, I, and some of this was covered, I think, in the... Uh, the movie The Man of a Thousand Faces in the 1950s with, uh, oh, who was it? I want to say George M. Cohan, but... <laughs> no, it was uh, Jimmy Cagney, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. There, there was some animosity between father and son there because of the fact that Creighton's mother and his father had a falling out, and I think the father, Lon Chaney Sr., of course, kept some things from Creighton. So that caused a bit of a rift, and... When he decided eventually to get into acting, he really wanted to distance himself from his father, uh, which is why he would use the name Creighton Cheney in most of his performances in the 1930s. And really it was just because he wanted his own identity. Um, and he didn't start really acting until after his father had passed away, uh, which if you you know sit there and, and factor in the, the time, he would have been, what, 25 when he started making his, his his true debut in films, which I guess by today's standards seems kind of old. But I think even then, it seemed a little late to be getting into the film industry. You would think he would have done more stuff in the silent era. 
He did a lot of handyman work. You know, getting into acting was, was, again, something he didn't do until after his father passed. I think that there was a resistance, and he really wouldn't start using the name Lon Chaney Jr. until later on in the 1930s. And certainly when he went to Universal, they even wanted him just to use the name Lon Chaney. They dropped the Jr. altogether. But once he changed the name, uh, to the best of my knowledge, he never went back to using that in anything. He would fluctuate for the rest of his career, whether he was Lon Chaney Jr. or Lon Chaney, just, you know, no no senior or junior on the end of his name. You know, I like the name Creighton. I have a friend named Creighton. His last name is Beryl. <laughs> oh, jeez. Creighton Beryl. <laughs> I thought you were being serious there for a second, and I was going to agree. I said, I like the name Creighton, and then you went that route. So, uh, well, you know, I... <laughs> So Lon Chaney was married in 1928 to Dorothy Hinckley, and they had two children, Lon Ralph Chaney and Ron Chaney, both of whom are deceased. Ron Chaney, of course, had his son, Ron Chaney Jr., who is alive and well and is continuing on the, uh, the Chaney tradition to a very small extent. He does do some conventions. He did appear in the movie House of the Wolfman, You've seen that movie. I still haven't watched it. I I have it. It's not a bad film. You know, a lot of people don't like it. It is a bit talky. It had a lot going for it. It needed a better script. Visually, I thought that it looked really good for the small budget. It it had the old dark house feel to it. They had, I thought, some, some good makeup going on in that as well. But there just wasn't enough of the monsters. There was a lot of talking. And some... If I remember correctly, some anachronistic dialogue that didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So uh, in any case, Ron Chaney Jr. has tried to carry on that tradition. I'll mention his name again here. Interested, uh, he's kind of working on a book, picking up on something his dad did. Uh, Well, we'll talk about that now. Um, Lon Chaney was writing a book called A Century of Chaney's at the time that he passed, but he never completed it and it was never published. Ron Chaney is supposedly supposed to be working on it in hopes of having it published someday, but there hasn't been any mention of it for a long time, and and I I don't know how old Ron Chaney is, but I think he's getting kind of up there in years a little bit, you would think, so I don't know. I don't know if that project is dead, how much Lon actually finished of it. I think that would be a book that would definitely go on my shelf. I mean, A Century of Cheney's written by Lon Cheney Jr. and Ron Cheney Jr. I mean, just the cover alone would, would look cool on the <laughs> shelf. Anyway, so Dorothy Hinckley was his first wife. They were married from 1928 to 1937. She divorced him for being drunken and sullen. Now, we always hear about that Lon, you know, by the 1950s, he was drinking a lot, and, and that, you know, apparently was something that goes a little farther back to at least the 1930s. He did get remarried in 1937, so the same year he got divorced, he remarried Patsy Beck, and I was surprised. He remained married to her until 1973. I guess I thought that, you know, for so many years he was kind of drunk on set and and as he continued to kind of decline in the 50s and 60s I just never heard anything about his wife but apparently she remained with him throughout all those times right up until um, his death in 1973. He technically he made his film debut in a silent film in 1922 called The Trap. He played the hands of a child 
which is odd because I'm thinking, well, 1922, he would have been 16, and I just never envisioned his hands being small, so I don't know how he would play the hands of a child. That seems kind of weird. But nonetheless, that supposedly was his film debut, but he wouldn't actually appear on screen uh, until nine years later in 1931 in a movie called The Galloping Ghost, which I don't believe is a Western or a uh, horror movie. I think it was a Western, which he did a lot of those uh, throughout his career, actually. Richard, do you know something interesting else interesting about The Trap? And this isn't a joke. Uh, from 1922, there's a reason perhaps that he was... Well, that's a Lon Chaney yes, yeah. senior film. Just, yes. I think it's interesting he was in that with his father. Yeah, and, and so I don't know if he was like on set or something, and they're like, well, here, let's film your hands. I don't know. I'd love to know more about that, but I couldn't find anything on that. That's, that seems odd. So after he does his first film in the 19, uh, 1931, he, he does a lot of westerns. He plays a lot of kind of rough-and-tough gangster-type characters, the bad guys. He was in uh, 1933's The Three Musketeers with John Wayne. Uh, one of his more memorable early roles was Undersea Kingdom, the 1936 chapter serial. He was in uh, Charlie Chan on Broadway, Mr. Moto's Gamble, and then in 1939, though, is where he had his breakout role as Lenny in Of Mice and Men. That really got him noticed and played a part in him getting the contract from Universal. He did 1 million BC in 1940, and then in 1941, he did, you know, some people consider 1 million BC pseudo horror. I don't. Uh, that's a whole other subgenre, prehistoric, I guess, subgenre that has never been a big thing for me. And I honestly can say I've never seen that movie before. And I don't. It's, that's, I, I guess I don't have an interest to see it either. I don't know. It's pretty good, is it? Yeah, I, is it? I watched it a, early in the Classic Horse Club blog days and my reviews on there. But it's worth watching. They, okay. There was a Blu-ray release that's really good. It, well, it's but, interesting. I mean, mostly for uh, the lead, Victor Mature, who oh wow, you don't really think of no in a loincloth running around, but he's good. You piqued my interest on that. Then maybe I do need to sit down. Yeah, and see I, I'd it. recommend. It's worth a watch. So in 1941, he does his first film for uh, first horror film from Universal, Man Made Monster. That's the first movie we're going to talk about today.
Death-dealing dynamo, all the furies of nature in his electric-charged body, his revenge-racked brain. Mad scientist Dr. Paul Regis learns that the miraculous survivor of a bus crash, Dan McCormick, is the perfect subject for his experiments in electrobiology. Will he create the worker of the future or a monster? Richard, I think it's interesting this episode is full of science, and it's full of areas of science that I have never really heard of. Uh, and, and I'd like to open, if I may, the discussion of each with just a word about the science. And in this ep- this movie, the science is electrobiology. You know, I, I knew going into these movies in particular, the first two, that uh, you know Carla's scientific brain was going to explode. She actually didn't have a hard time with this one, surprisingly. Now, the alligator people was another issue. Yeah, I actually, the, I know the science in this one was a bit whacked out, but uh, yeah, electrobiology, I, it, I don't know. For some reason, it worked in this movie. I don't know why. I mean, yeah, it's mad scientist territory. I mean, you've got Lionel Atwill, you know, playing the, the mad scientist. You can't help but immediately go down that path. Part of it just, it just, maybe the story just seemed to be well handled and not as far-fetched you're dealing with i don't know electricity that's a real thing as opposed to creating a like a monster you know or something i don't know it worked for me yeah the only thing i didn't really i wasn't clear on his purpose like really what he was trying to accomplish i mean he wanted to accomplish a race that was dependent only on electricity he wanted to create the worker of the future that would never tire out you know, I think it, it helps that it's it's made by Universal. So even though the movie clocked in at less than an hour long, it obviously didn't have a big budget. It still looked good. It was well made. You had a really good cast. There was just, everything seemed to click on this movie for me. It's not a movie that is one of their big classics. It's not one that gets talked about, I think, nearly as much as it probably should. Because I think it's a fun film. I think that, again, you had a lot of elements go into it. I think that Lon Chaney does a, a great job as, as Dan McCormick. Well, let's talk about the cast. I mean, you've got Lionel Atwill, as we mentioned, playing Dr. Paul Regis. Of course, he had already done quite a few classic films in the 1930s by this point. Dr. X, The Vampire Bat, Murders in the Zoo. He had just done Son of Frankenstein. You know, by the 1940s, uh, he started to do some lesser roles, but he was still cranking them out. Uh, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. He was in, I believe, more than one Charlie Chan film. So he was still a top-tier monster actor in my mind at this point. You had Anne Nagel as June Lawrence. She looked familiar, and that's because she was in Black Friday. Uh, She was also, I believe, the lead in The Invisible Woman, um, she was also in another Lionel Atwell film called The Mad Doctor of Market Street, which is a universal film that doesn't get mentioned a lot because it has never been... Well, it did get released on one of those Turner Classic Movies universal sets that were ridiculously priced. And I actually have had it for a while, and it's a pretty good film. Ooh, I want to borrow that. I didn't know you had that. I, I, ha- I, I have a lot of those lesser-known universal films, not the the Turner Classic version of it, but I have the the bootleg that I got when you couldn't find it anywhere. I want to just say I like Ann Nagel's voice. I, you know, as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, okay, I remembered. I was like, I've seen her in films before. Yeah, she she 
She was good in this film. Mad Monster was another one that she did. Now, Frank Albertson and Samuel S. Hines, I immediately recognized them because they're from It's a Wonderful Life. Frank Albertson played Mark Adams, the love interest, I guess, of sorts for June Lawrence. He plays Sam Wainwright in It's a Wonderful Life. I'm sure everyone has just, you know, or not everyone, but most of you have probably seen that movie since the holidays are, are just over. Sam Wainwright's the guy who goes around the movie saying, hee-haw. Oh, gosh. He was also in lots of TV. He was also in Psycho which uh, I can't remember the character he played, but he, I thought that was kind of surprising. Hmm. Now, Samuel S. Hines is a hes a character actor that I recognize a lot. He just seems like he's got a very mellow, low-key approach to his roles. He's in a lot of different films. He played Dr. John Lawrence. He was Pa Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. And he's also in another universal horror film that doesn't get talked a lot about, The Strange Case of Dr. Rx, which I also have. I think it's just a really good cast. You've also got to mention when you're talking about the cast and crew is the fact that the screenplay was by George Wagner, who also directed the film. And although he directed, I think he used the name Joseph West in this particular movie, of course, George Wagner did lots of television work, including Batman. He's the one, by that point, he... Way he would spell his name, he, the the two G's and his last name were always capital. If you notice that on Batman, that was by design. That was hmm. how he wanted his name. I why I don't know. It seems odd. Uh, he also did a lot of uh, episodes of Seventy Seven Sunset Strip, The Veil, which is uh, hosted by Boris Karloff. He did uh, The Wolfman, Horror Island, The Climax. So yeah, he was well known. He did a lot of genre films. And he started out, I believe, in Westerns. The bottom part of his resume is full of uh, Westerns. Yes. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. What I didn't catch was that this was actually based on a story called The Electric Man, uh, written by three people, according to IMDb, and they're never wrong. Harry Essex, Sid Schwartz, and Len Golos, which I thought was kind of interesting that a short story apparently would be written by three people, and I don't know... I don't have anything on them. If there's something about them, I... I, I oh, I do. Okay. Well, Harry, Harry Essex is a big name. He I wrote... It was. It Came From Outer Space in 53 oh and gosh, Creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon in 54. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's so. why I, I... For some reason, I knew his name, but I, I when I did the search, I didn't pull up anything that pulled out of me. I should have seen that. Excellent. Yeah. And apparently, this was originally purchased in 1935, and it was supposed to be a vehicle for Karloff and Lugosi. Not sure what happened, how it got shuffled, put to the bottom, but then did not get resurrected then until 41. I saw the title of it was supposed to be The Man in the Cab, which I'm like, I don't even know how that relates to the story. So interesting that I wonder what Karloff and Lugosi, who would have played what? You know, would would Karloff have played the mad scientist and Lugosi the, the Cheney role? I honestly don't see either Karloff or Lugosi necessarily being in, in Cheney's role. But well, Karloff maybe because it, it kind of harkened back a little bit to um, The Invisible Ray a little bit. And The Walking Dead. Yeah. Where Karloff... I could I, I would say Karloff I could see Karloff, Cheney and yeah, Lugosi as the doctor. As the man's... Yeah, I couldn't see Lugosi playing the Cheney role. It would have been interesting to say, especially 1935... When Karloff and Lugosi were just really hot commodities at Universal, it would have been interesting. I'm curious as to why it never got made. I was depending on you to tell me. I only made the note that that 
that that happened and I well, can dig deeper. You know, and as I'm thinking of this, I, I might be able to to follow up for next episode because I've got that Universal Horror book by Tom Weaver. For some reason, and now that I'm thinking about it, it may be talked about. I think if anybody would know, it'd be Tom Weaver. I mean, he's an expert in Universal right. Horror. That's an excellent that that book is a bible full of information so i'll have to check up on that for next episode the uh the budget for this film this i found interesting it had a budget of $86,000 which supposedly wasn't that great of a budget but then when you look at the budget for spider baby which was nearly 30 years later it only had a budget of uh, $60,000 so I guess in comparison, it's like that really, if, if 86000 wasn't much in 41, 60000 must not have been much at all in 68. Both seem small by today's standards. I thought that was kind of funny. And I didn't couldn't find how much Cheney made in this movie. I was really wanting to see if there was anything on that because I know what he got paid for Spider Baby, which right. was $2,500, which was virtually nothing. But significantly more than the rest of the cast. I, I just thought it was interesting as to... Uh, I, I really wanted to find out what he got, what he earned in this film. Probably not as much as he did in later films because this was being his first universal horror film. He hadn't done a lot. But then again, this was right after Of Mice and Men and you would think that that bumped him up uh, significantly on, on whatever he could ask for for salary. Then again, you know, it's the 1940s and it's Universal and he was in a horror film which was not nearly as well-respected as a film like Of Mice and Men. Richard, adjusted for inflation, 86000 in 1941 is $1,005,000 today. So if you put that into perspective... I still think that seems... Kind of good for 19. It does. It does. 41. If that's their cheapest, then that's not bad. So and then and it doesn't look cheap at all. So then, in comparison, if you're if you're looking to at sixty thousand dollars, then in nineteen sixty eight, okay, in today's standards would be what less than a million probably. So I look at Spider Baby. I'm thinking, well, that kind of looks well made. I know we'll talk about that later, but there was a lot in that film that I was surprised. I mean, it, it, yeah, it obviously had a budget. You you had some limited sets, but I was surprised in that film how well it looked. So yeah, I and that adjusted for inflation is about 500000 today. So half a million, and I'd use 64. And considering how I've seen a lot of other low-budget horror films which are dealing with more money and look really bad by today's standards, some of that is CGI. CGI, if you go cheap on CGI, it really looks bad. Uh, if you do a lot of, of green screen work with a really bad film, I, there was a trend there for a while. Thankfully, I think either technology's improved or maybe filmmakers have kind of backtracked on it, but CGI blood for a while in films was really, really... There were some films that were really bad. And it seems like some films I've seen recently is like... I can't imagine that they're using real blood... Maybe technology's just improved on, on the CGI. But there was a while. There was one film. I can't remember what it was. It had Ron Perlman in it. It was a science fiction film. And there was a lot of like sword fighting and blood and guts. And the CGI blood was so horrific. I'm like, this might have been a good film if they would have done just real blood. Or just 
downplayed the blood because with the CGI blood, it looked like I was looking at a 1995 video game. It was so bad. Hmm. Anyway, we digress. The budget, uh, I think if you've got a good filmmaker, you can make a small budget look like a big budget film. I think that's really where it comes down to. So if you've got somebody who knows what they're doing, they can spend the money where it needs to be spent. And I think Man Made Monster, while not being one of the top tier films and being less than an hour, I think it, it ended up really looking like a, a, a top tier universal horror film, in my opinion. Yeah, I really like it. I think the script is really good. It has some funny lines, uh, unintentionally and intentionally maybe, but when uh, after Lon goes through his accident of a bus crashing into an electric, was it an electrical tower or a pole? Uh, it was like a, yeah, like a, I wouldn't well, I don't know. It's something that had like It could be a tower because, I mean, it, or, you know, it could be one of those those larger uh, electrical lines like you, you, you see yeah. sometimes in rural areas where they're the bigger towers. I don't know. But after he crashes in it, he says, lucky to be alive after a shock like that. So double meaning with the word shock. I loved how, how, how lighthearted he was in the oh. in the hospital at the beginning. I, I don't know. I just thought that was fun. I had a note that it was nice to see Chaney happy in a role. He was so happy and likable and nice and friendly. And well, you don't often see that. If you think back at the at the, the start of, of The Wolfman, when he's flirting with, with the gal and, and the antique yeah. shop... You know, before his world turns to, to heck, you know, and, and gets bit. From that point forward, I don't think Lon's ever happy in the, in the rest of the Wolfman cycle because he's trying to to beat it. And I think, the, you know, you see a little bit of happiness when he supposedly beats it in, at the end of House of Dracula. But then by the time we see him in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he's in deep depression because there's no mention of the cure. So, yeah, anytime that he's happy... In some of his later roles, like well, he certainly is is happy at times in the in the alligator people, but he comes across in a much sleazier way. So I agree. Yeah, he was. It was fun to see him in a lighthearted way at the start of this movie, and I think it set the pace for for the what I think the rest of the film was just. It was fun, even though you're dealing with his character. You know, digresses rapidly through the film. It was it was fun to watch in the sense that it was a well made movie, and, and yeah. his performance I think was really good in this movie. Yeah, and I, I always think from Wolfman, all I remember is "Woe is me, I want to die." You know, all of that. So I forget that he was happy in that. But this really stuck out to me. Also, another line that I thought was funny near the end when the mad scientist is explaining his plot. Dan has gone through all of this while he's arrested and been interrogated and all of that. And after the heroes hear the mad scientist explanation, they say, and they gave him a sanity test talking about (laughs) Dan. So that was kind of funny. Uh, Then this line, which is just profound, anyone who commits murder must be momentarily insane or they wouldn't do it. (laughs) So I don't know. I love the script. I think it's funny and charming like that uh so i think that's you know better than most i like the makeup and i think uh jack pierce is uncredited so i don't know you know i'm gonna assume he did it but near the end of the movie as he becomes more drawn and his face is kind of gray and he even looks sort of misshapen uh, it like does, he's becoming yeah. more gone i thought that was great I loved the special effects i thought they did really well with the glowing making his body glow and you know, I'm trying to think about that. How did they do that? Uh, I would assume maybe some animation, you know, added 
which I know would come into play in, in other other films of the time period where they could you know animate certain things like that. I mean, I can't imagine like a, a phosphorescent paint wouldn't have that type of effect to, to actually shimmer and glow. So it had, had to have been some type of animation. But it was really good, like when he put his suit on, you know, there was no bleeding of the... Well, maybe a little because he is glowing. But yeah. I, I just thought that was really no. well done. No, that, the suit, by the way, I, I that weighed 70 pounds, more than 70 pounds. Wow. And you think about, like, you know, like the boots that Karloff wore, then he had to carry... Colin Clive and how the damage it did to it to his back. I mean, the work, hey, all the stuff that Lon Chaney Sr. put himself through. This was a time period where, you know, actors really weren't, they weren't really valued as much. They they were they were seen as as, I don't know, you know, property, and and they would have to go through quite a lot and didn't often have control over situations. Where now, you know, an actor could say, well, I refuse to do that. And insurance companies wouldn't allow a lot of stuff like that to happen in these days. But back then, you know, the actors were considered property of the studios. It, I recently saw Stan and Ollie, and uh, I absolutely love that movie. And in the early part of the film, it's 1937, and they're filming a sequence from their movie Way Out West, which is one of their best films. And Hal Roach Jr., no, no, Hal Roach Sr., Hal Roach Sr., Jr. Hal Roach. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, is, is, was he a junior or is that his son? Hal Roach really comes off as, as a total jerk in this film. I'm not sure if that was maybe a bit, you know, overdone a little bit, but he certainly considers Stan and Ollie like property and how Stan is wanting to make more money and, and wants a little more control over the film. And, and Hal Roach is like, you know, looks at the director and he says, you know, you're the director. You know, you run the show. You tell them how to act. You tell them what to do. You know, don't, you know, listen to them. It stood out to me and it, and it, it makes me wonder, too. It's like, you know, if, if, you know, something like this, if Cheney would have complained about it, what would George Wagner have done? You know, I think it probably depends on the director and the studio. But they they were considered more like, OK, this is what you do. And, you know, unless you're at a certain tier and at which Cheney wouldn't have been at this point. He would have, and plus he had done a lot of a stunt work at this point too. So he probably didn't even think anything of it. But I wondered if it had an effect on him later in life. You know, if he had, you hear about Karloff's back issues, and Lugosi, of course, had uh, pain as well, and and would, that would lead to his addictions. Wonder if Cheney was in any pain because certainly Cheney went down. A darker path as the years went on. I wonder if you know you don't hear about it, but I wonder if all of the stunt work and and the physical stuff that he did earlier on in his career had a negative effect on his body later on. Yeah, I'm sure he was feeling no pain, but uh, whether <laughs> exactly. he really had some, I don't know. I, I also liked back to the science, and I know they have to do this to educate the audience about what's going on, but everyone from reporters to police seem to know exactly what's happening to uh, to Dan and what's going to happen yeah. if, if he tears his suit on the barbed wire fence you know the electricity is going to escape and I just thought wow this must have happened before because everybody predicts and can announce right before <laughs> yeah. what happens what's going to happen so that that was um, yeah I thought it was charming yeah that kind of stuff would be considered you know a weak script by today's standards but you look back at these old films and it's like I don't know you're more forgiving of, of things like that and it comes across Charming, like you said, it comes across a lot different. We're a lot harsher, I think, on current films because 
we hold them to a higher standard, yet we can watch these old films from the 30s and 40s and like, well, you know, you know crazy little things. And, and uh, some people laugh at them. I don't. I always kind of find it funny. It's like when you see is like, you know, how much people smoke back then, you know, and, and it's like they're just constantly, you know, somebody's having a bad day, you know, well, here, have a cigarette and calm down, you know, and they're always uh, drinking a lot. Carl and I are watching the Thin Man movies, and in the very first movie, the character of uh, of Nick Charles, played by William Powell, is like, he is drunk from the beginning of the film to the end of the film, and she had never seen these before, and she loves them, but she was laughing, and she's like, my God, he's just like, they're, they're, how is his brain not pickled? And I'm like, well, that's a good point. I mean, because he's got a drink in hand pretty much throughout the whole movie. It's downplayed in later films, but in that first film, it is kind of funny, and you see that and these old movies, uh, it's. I think it's, again, that kind of actions would be criticized today, but we look back at these old films and we just smile and think it's charming. And I think I've criticized that in other movies of this era, but I, I don't know. It seems like we haven't done a movie from this era that's a horror movie in a long time, and it just could be it just didn't stand out. It just went with the flow and was part of the overall in, enjoyment of this movie. It didn't stick out as a flaw where, you know, not to be a hypocrite, but I, I'm sure at times I have critiqued a movie uh, because of that. And speaking of Carla, so how did she like the ending? I don't think she had a problem with it, per se. I mean, Well, and I mean like the very ending, because I thought it was very sweet. Like, they've, they've got this story, they want to publish it, but, oh, if they do that, yeah. people are going to learn how to do this themselves. So they toss his diary in the fireplace i just thought that was yeah. a sweet good-natured ending yeah you know? she and she loves these movies because there's always like two characters always get together at the end they haven't met you know a week ago but now they're getting married and she always kind of chuckles at that yeah and she did like that she she and even though there was sadness of course characters die and she hates that but there was that happy ending and and, and it certainly it didn't leave the door open for a sequel. I mean, it, it it kind of said, well, you know, here here in our hands is the paperwork that could lead to another man-made monster, but we're going to get rid of it. I don't know what you could have done with a sequel that would have been any different. Uh, not every film needs to have a sequel. And I think that this definitely had a, a very definitive end to the story arc, and, and I like that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Here was an interesting little side note on the film. Real Art Pictures was the company that would re-release the movies, the Universal Horror Films, and they re-released this in the 1950s. They changed the title to The Atomic Monster, which I guess would work in a roundabout way, Yeah, obviously capitalizing on the atomic craze of, of that time period. The new title was apparently or claimed to have been ripped off from a script written by writer-producer Alex Gordon. He had submitted this uh, script idea called The Atomic Monster to real art. And even though, I guess, the plot was marginally the same, the fact that they used the title, he went ahead. He had his attorney, Samuel Arkoff, go to real art representative James Nicholson to discuss the matter. Alex Gordon ends up getting a quick $1,000 settlement for copyright infringement, but this, of course, led to the meeting of Alex Gordon, Samuel Arkoff, and James H. Nicholson, and they would go on to form their own film company that eventually became 
American International Pictures. Huh. So, Man-Made Monster actually has a, a really... I wouldn't even call it a footnote. It's bigger than a footnote. It, it caused a series of events that led to the creation of AIP, which then, of course, how many films were under that banner? So, uh, an interesting little side note in, in film history. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's interesting. I know that real art, when you watch a lot of the Universal trailers... You see that right. you know, re-released by Real Art Pictures. So we're not seeing the real original trailers. We're seeing the re-release trailers, which I always kind of wondered is like, well, are the real trailers out there? Because it seems like they're on every one. That's for the most part. Right. Um, anyway, uh, that's that's my little footnote there on uh, Man Made Monster. What else? That's all I've got as far as trivia. Do you have anything else as far? No, as no. Goes? Just I really enjoyed it. I did too. I think it was a, a, a good start to looking at the films of, of Lon Chaney. And, and of course, this was a good start for him because he had a tremendous decade that would follow it in the 1940s. I mean, this led to The Wolfman. He played virtually every monster in the 1940s. I mean, he obviously plays The Wolfman. He was the, uh, the monster in Ghost of Frankenstein. Then he was back to being The Wolfman in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He was in three of the Mummy movies, uh, Curse, Ghost, and Tomb. He was in all six, was there six of the Inner Sanctum films? I believe six. He, of course, played the vampire in Son of Dracula. And he did other films, too. He was, uh, I was surprised when we saw this not too long ago, the uh, Bob Hope film, My Favorite Brunette, that it had Chaney and Peter Lorre in it. Hmm. Of course, uh, as we get to the 1950s, then, you know, his, his star, his moment is, is kind of over. Horror films are changing in this time period, and some of the big stars of the 30s and 40s are now doing much lesser roles. I mean, Karloff did a handful of films in the 1950s, started doing more television stuff. Of course, Lugosi's doing stuff, but they're not the top-tier stuff anymore. If you look at, like, like Karloff's horror output was greatly reduced... And uh, as was Lugosi's, and Lon Chaney would follow suit. He was in The Black Castle alongside Boris Karloff. He does his infamous appearance in Tales of Tomorrow, the uh, Frankenstein, where he plays the monster. And he was drunk on set and didn't realize it was live, and he thought it was a, you know, a rehearsal. And he like picks up the chair, and then he's supposed to smash it, and then sets it down, and. Uh, you know, unfortunately, by the 1950s, his his drinking was really affecting his craft, unfortunately, and was having a negative effect on him physically because you look at Cheney in, in the th- 30s and 40s, and he, he was kind of a dashing guy. He was big. He wasn't ever going to be a pretty boy, but he had, he was a good-looking guy. And then you look at him by the 1950s, and he very quickly was really showing the signs of alcoholism. You look at him like in The Black Sleep, for example. I mean, he's very haggard in that, and and he looks better there than he would 10 years later. By the late 1950s, though, he did do a couple of films where he was kind of resurrecting his prominence in horror films. He was in The Cyclops, where he played kind of the curmudgeon uh, pilot in that film, uh, the Cyclops is notorious for the, uh, I, I can't remember the creature's name, the, the man or whatever, but he gets shot in the eye with a spear, and 
it's kind of gory for 1957. And that scene is actually edited out of some television prints. And when Turner Classic Movies played it on television, at some point in recent years, they played the unedited, or they played the edited version originally. And I think even when the Cyclops got released by Warner Archive, I think it was, they had the edited version. A lot of people called them on that, and eventually they corrected it. And and I know that, uh, I think Turner Classic as well, they play the unedited whenever they pop up that movie. I think it was Turner Classics that played it. Was it AMC? AMC doesn't really do classic stuff like that anymore. I don't know. I know that that for a while there was the two different prints of that circulating. Hmm. Cheney also does The Indestructible Man, which I just watched. And that film is interesting because there's certain elements of man-made monster in that movie a little bit. Of course, he plays a criminal in that film. And his only lines are in the opening part of that movie. And then, of course, he becomes kind of indestructible and goes on a rampage. His death at the end of the film is essentially getting kind of electrified, so to speak. So, I don't know. There was just certain parts of that movie that reminded me. with his The way he performed the character reminded me of Man-Made Monster. Indestructible Man is, is technically a public domain film, I believe. I have a, a Lon Chaney... DVD set. It has supposedly a restored version of the film, although I don't see that it's any better than what's out on public domain. The public domain version is actually in pretty good condition. It, it's it's not a bad film. It's a it's a fun film, and I think Cheney, you know, doesn't get a lot to say in this movie. And there's certainly some goofy, low budget 1950s acting in the film, and there's long segments of that movie where there's like no dialogue and so I'm like it seemed to me like they were filming a lot of stuff but then maybe adding voiceovers later I don't know it, it, it is a little odd at times but it's actually considering how many other public domain films can be really rough around the edges it actually stands out and I think it's one of uh, Cheney's better performances from the latter part of his career hmm. So we get up to 1959 and our next film, The Alligator People. Inside this strange, forbidding plantation, on the edge of the death-laden bios, there is a horror beyond belief. A scientist turns his cobalt rays on the revolting scaly monarchs of the swamps to transform men into hideous living gargoyles whose faces must be forever hidden from human sight. We didn't have to hit him. Quicker, simplest way, Doctor. But these are people. You don't handle them like animals. Beverly Garland as the unwelcome visitor, haunted by the fear that the man she loves has become one of them. What are you doing? I'm not leaving here, Mrs. Hawthorne, until I get the answers to the questions that brought me here. What have you done with my husband? Lon Chaney as the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! Suspense that will clutch you like quicksand. (laughs) Pulling you down into bottomless depths of suffocating horror.
terror in the bayou. Under hypnosis, Jane Marvin reveals the mystery that unfolded after the disappearance of her husband, Paul Webster. At an isolated plantation in Bayou Landing, she encountered Dr. Eric Lorimer, whose experiments involved extracting reptilian fluids in order to heal the wounded. Was he successful or did he create a monster? Richard, the science in this one is neuropathology, and I feel like of all the science in all of these movies, that's got the potential to be the most real. And in fact, I think neuropathology is real. However, I do not think the application of it is particularly real in the alligator people. I don't recall seeing an alligator person anytime recently. I mean, I've seen some people that might look a little rough around the edges, but uh, I would agree. I think the science is probably more accurate than, say, you know, turning someone into a man-made monster and let's not even talk about Spider Baby yet and what's going on there. Even though the start of that movie does make me question and I had to do some Google, yeah, I think the science in this one and the way it's presented is probably the most accurate of the three, for whatever that's worth. This is a first time viewing for me in a while. I've seen this one before. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun film. It, 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 certainly taking a look at where Lon Chaney Jr. is at this point, you know, it had been a while since he'd been really a leading man type even though he did The Indestructible Man uh, in 56, 57. That was his last leading man role, I think, for quite a while in his career. This one, he's a supporting star. And he clearly, though, now so many years later, he, he's, he's the one everyone recognizes. I mean, you know, we can talk about the cast, and we will here in a moment, but it's Lon Chaney Jr. that everyone recognizes now. And I think that's probably the main reason that people are going to sit down and watch The Alligator People is because it's a Lon Chaney Jr. film. He plays Manon, who is described in the film as a drunken fool, so in some cases you could say this was a role he was born to play. <laughs> I think so. I mean, he, he certainly, you know, he, he's, he's haggard looking. You know, he's, you, you take a look at where he was just 10 years earlier, uh, 11 years earlier when you watch Evan Costello meet Frankenstein, he's still kind of dashing. He's he's looking good at that point. And then just a few years later, he's doing his run in Tales of Tomorrow as the Frankenstein monster. And he's working alongside Boris Karloff in The Black Castle, where he's no longer the leading man. And I think his haggard look sometimes is a detriment in some of his performances. Here, he he is able to enhance his role by the way he was looking naturally at that point. And he's handicapped. He's had a little mishap in his past. A little bit Captain Hook, you know, the gator's got his hand, but not enough that he can't hold a hook in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the hook worked depending on the angle of the shot. When he's getting into the car, you can clearly tell that he's he's holding a hook, and that didn't that didn't fare too well. Maybe back in the day you wouldn't necessarily see it as much as we do now when we're sitting and watching these films and looking at shots uh, in the comfort of our own home and watching these movies over and over again. I can't honestly say that on my first viewing, I probably noticed it as much as I did on this viewing, which is probably my third or fourth time seeing this movie, maybe. I think it's my second. And yeah, we've talked many times about how when they made these movies, they never anticipated people would be sitting in their homes watching them 
high definition, you know, dissecting every scene. And You've got a really good cast in this one. You, you mentioned uh, Lon Chaney Jr. already. You've got Beverly Garland playing uh, the lead character of uh, Joyce Webster. She is in a wide variety of films, varying degrees of success. Uh, she was in DOA, which, of course, is a classic film noir. That was an early role for her. Then she was in uh, The Neanderthal Man. I saw that. That's a rough film. Saw that on Netflix. And uh, back in the day when they had some quote-unquote classic horror and sci-fi films, and they were getting ready to drop it off their streaming service, and so I had to be really quick and, and check that out. And it was something that, you know, it's not on my collection, and as I always say, that says a lot. Well, thank God you didn't miss it. <laughs> exactly. It Conquered the World, much better film. Then you've got uh, Kuruku, Beast of the Amazon, one of the most disappointing films, I think, of all time. Not of this earth. Have you seen that one? I have not. I picked that one up years ago at Trek Expo down in, in Tulsa on a um, less than reputable copy. It's uh, it's not a bad little film. It's it's a you know 1950s kind of forgettable space aliens invading Earth kind of flick. Is that uh, the one they remade with Tracy Lords? Yes, yes, that is the one they remade. Not a bad film. Not a bad film. She was in episodes of The Twilight Zone, The Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, the Planet of the Apes television series. She was Ellen Lane in Lois and Clark. And she, of course, most people, and my, probably my first exposure to her was playing Barbara Douglas on the uh, latter episodes of My Three Sons. So she, she certainly is a well-known television actress, did a lot of guest roles over the years. Now, Bruce Bennett plays Dr. Eric Lorimer. He actually was at one time known as Herman Bricks. That was his real name. And he was in a 1935 chapter serial called New Adventures of Tarzan. That chapter serial came out at the same time as the Johnny Weissmuller films, but it had the endorsement of Edgar Rice Burroughs as being a more faithful adaptation. And indeed, his Tarzan is is skinnier, he's not really buff-looking, he's not as, as dashing as Johnny Weissmuller, which was more in line with how Tarzan is kind of portrayed in the novel, the original chapter serial. He was also in Shadows of Chinatown, which we talked about on the Bela Lugosi movie, that chapter serial. He was uh, alongside Boris Karloff in The Man with Nine Lives. He was in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And uh, now his next to last film was actually in 1973, a movie called The Clones. Have you ever heard of that one? I have not. I, I had not until I'd seen it in the the uh, credits, the IMDb list, and I'm intrigued. I, I don't know that it's been released on DVD. I can't say I've ever seen it pop up on television, but I'm interested. It's it's a sci-fi flick, obviously about cloning. Go go figure. And uh, I'm interested in that one. I, you know, whenever you see these lists of films and you see something you've never seen before and hasn't been given a wide release, it makes you want to find it that much more. I did see a movie about clones. Uh, it was a comedy. It's called Send in the Clones. Send in the... Oh, right. George McReady played Dr. Mark Sinclair. He was in Count Yorga and The Return of Count Yorga, films mm. that we may very well do here on the show at some point. We've talked about that. He also was in The Twilight Zone, did lots of TV work. He was also in a film that I saw last summer called The Human Duplicators. And I think I'm missing one other person on the list. Who was Joyce Webster's husband? 
While you're thinking about the other person, I want to talk for a minute about George McGreedy. Did you notice watching it, his voice, did he remind you of anybody? Rhetorical question, I know, because I asked you before we started recording, and it didn't. And I played it for you, and you agreed. So I want to play this little clip, and you all listen and tell me if this doesn't sound like someone we, we know and love and have talked about many times on the podcast. So just listen. I'm Dr. Sinclair, a boxing player. I'm sort of the swamp doctor. Uh, that's my swamp buggy. I need to get around. I see. You must keep busy, Doctor. Well, why do you say that? I mean, in an unhealthy environment like this. Oh, you mean the swamp. <laughs> well, actually, if it were, as you say, unhealthy, none of us would be here. Well, Richard, you know the answer, but do you, you want to tell everyone? Well, it sounds like Barnabas Collins. And I, as you said, I didn't pick it up originally, but when you played the clip for me, as I, I can hear that now. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of kind of weird, kind of creepy. Yeah, I think it's uncanny. And even the cadence of his voice and, and some of the lines he has, it just it really, really evokes Jonathan Fred for me. So Richard Crane played Paul Webster. I guess the, the was he wasn't necessarily the lead in this film. Beverly Garland was, but he is the namesake of the film. He was the alligator person. We never really see alligator people per se in this, really. You know, the title would seem to think that there's like, you know, the hordes of, of alligator, half man, half alligators, and you really, you only see the one in this movie. Richard Crane had 135 credits to his name. A lot of his early roles were uncredited films. And just kind of glancing, he didn't really do anything, I don't think, unless I'm missing something that's necessarily earth-shattering. You know, he... Uh, actually died at a young age, died in 1969 at the age of 50. But I'm trying to see, I don't know what he necessarily died of. It doesn't say on IMDb. So according to IMDb, at the time of his death, he was president of Film Trend Productions. But that doesn't really say what he died of. He was 50 years old, though, when he died in 1969. So that seems rather young. So I don't know if he had some type of illness or as to why he died young. I don't recall seeing him in any other thing, any other movie, do you? Well, I did not, but now that I flipped through IMDb, I see he was in Devil's Partner. That's one I watched, oh, a year or so ago and, and wrote about on the blog, which I kind of like that little movie, but he played David Simpson in Devil's Partner. That's the one with the great movie poster. I think I've, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yes. I, I've never seen that one. A good cast, not necessarily... I don't think an A-list cast, other than Lon Chaney Jr., who was an A-list by 1959. Lon Chaney was clearly used for name recognition, I think. He does good in his role as Manon. You know, at this point of his career, he was certainly a supporting actor. He was in the lead, and he was being used, I think, more times than not for whatever uh, his name value was still at that point. So let's talk about those alligator people or the alligator person. So I think... Probably, in your mind, you think of the end product, which we don't see really, except for a blessedly brief point at the end of the movie, the full-on alligator person. Any attempts, would you like to try to describe that? When I, I see him, he reminds me of the original Mego Star Trek action figure in the 1970s, their original version of the Gorn which was basically the head of the lizard 
from Spider-Man, painted brown, wearing a Klingon outfit, and they were going to call him the Gorn. It was absolutely horrible. I can't recall even seeing that in stores when I was young, and I didn't want that. I wanted some of the other figures, but, you know, and I do have a bunch of the original Mego figures, but uh, I, don't, I don't have the Gorn, and, and uh, that one I always kind of puzzled. I was like, that doesn't look like the Gorn at all. Well, no. Mego would do that quite often back in the day. They would repaint and repurpose uh, molds and, and figures to, uh, to come up with another character that sometimes wasn't necessarily really a good depiction of what the character or what the superhero was. And certainly with Star Trek, they did some weird things as some of their figures, like having a Neptunian, which never saw the light of day. A beautiful figure. I mean, they spent money on it, and it, it was an original head that they didn't use for anything else. But it didn't resemble anything ever in Star Trek. I kind of wish there would have been a Neptunian, but it was a bizarre, bizarre choice. So, yeah, that's if you know what I'm talking about, that is the alligator people. That's, that's who you're dealing with in this movie. It is clearly a, a mask on a wetsuit and certain angles. I mean, when the, when the alligator man is, is moving or running or bending over, you can clearly see that it's... It's a suit. There's there's not a lot of effort put into the special effects for this one. But luckily, that is just at the end. I think the makeup leading up to that is pretty good. Just when it's, and I say green, it's a black and white movie. You don't know, but I assume the scaly look on his face is probably green. It, that's pretty good makeup, I think. I, I would agree. I would agree. The the, the pre-alligator person uh, is, is much more rewarding than the actual payoff. It kind of reminded me of The Maze. Uh, a movie that had a lot of of, of uh, atmosphere and, and a great cast and, and a lot of things going for it. And then there's the reveal that seems to fall very, very flat for me, even upon revisiting that recently. I, I love the movie more upon my second viewing of The Maze, but the the big reveal in the movie, you, you, I don't know, you couldn't help but laugh at it. And that's kind of what happens here. It's like the movie has atmosphere. It's kind of being in the swamp. You've got Lon Chaney Jr. playing a pretty nasty character. I mean, I had forgot when he is, you know, certainly on the verge of, of well, he's on the verge of raping Joyce. That's, that's pretty intense for 1959, and still, even by today's standards. I mean, and probably one of his sleazier roles, I would think, out of all the films that I've seen him play, I mean, he plays some less than reputable characters in the latter half of his career. I think this is probably one of his worst. I can't think of one that he's necessarily more evil at. Even like, you know, some of the craziness in, in Spider-Baby, you've got some comedic elements to that. And while he does some odd things in that, he, he doesn't do anything to the level as what he does in this one. Yeah, and he doesn't, you don't have any sympathy for him. I mean, Absolutely yeah, not, no. his hand sure got eaten by the crocs, so he's got a reason to be a drunken fool. However, he doesn't do anything with that to make you feel sorry for him. He shoots wildly out in the night at the gators, and then, yeah, what he does to, to Beverly Garland's character, or tries to do, is just despicable, and there's no sympathy for him. He's... In these movies, there's often a human that's as much a monster as the actual monster. And in this one, it's definitely Lon Chaney Jr. You know, he doesn't really, I'm trying to think, he doesn't play a big part, though, in the end of the film, in the closing chapter of the film, really. 
Unless well, I'm, he's sort of a catalyst for what happens. He's a catalyst for what happens, but you know, he's and again, he's a supporting character. So you you know the uh, the framework around, of course, you know, seeing Joyce in, in the doctor's office and stuff. I mean, that's so far removed from what you see in the rest of the film. And obviously, there's no sign of Lon Chaney by that point. So yeah, I want to talk about talk about that for a sec because that's interesting. It, it there is a wraparound story. I mean, it's almost like an expanded anthology, I guess, from that perspective. But yeah, this woman has no memory, and the doctor that she's working for learns that under hypnosis, you know, she can learn more about her true identity. So then it flashes back, and really everything horrific that happened is is part of this flashback. I'm not sure why they did that. It very easily could have been just the story of her meeting her soon-to-be husband and him disappearing and her looking for him in the swamps of Louisiana. I don't know if they needed more substance to it and tried to, to pad it out. Uh, it, it works. It doesn't feel padded. And I, I like, then, the ultimate movie ultimate end of the movie uh, by doing this, but it just, it's, it's kind of unique. I don't think we see a lot of wraparounds like that. No, it is unique. Uh, it, it doesn't really add anything to the movie. I don't think, you know, to the overall story, but it does kind of elevate the movie a little bit. It, it gives it that extra, let's do a flashback sequence and let's talk about what happened. And I don't know, padding possibly to, to pad out the time. Although, how much it would have padded it out, I don't know. Between the opening and ending, maybe five minutes, maybe, if even that. Not much. Yeah, I guess not. And it just dawned on me, too, now I don't know if it is such a good idea. Because if you are talking to this woman in the present, as if she really would end up being in danger anyway in one of these movies. But you know nothing's going to happen to her because she's sitting here in the present. It does give away, yeah. I mean, there's that... Uh, most of the time, I think we know that the... The, the heroine of the piece isn't going to die in most of these movies. It, you kind of know that things don't necessarily end happily for her husband because there's clearly no indication that her husband's still alive. Yeah, it does give away almost a little too much. So let's talk about the writers and the director. You've got a story by Robert Fresco, Orville Hampton, and Charles O'Neill. And Orville Hampton, of course, did the screenplay. So Robert Fresco did some impressive work. He did Tarantula. The Monolith Monsters. And then he did a film called Invasion of the Animal People. Have you heard of this movie? I have not. So it was originally a film called Terror in the Midnight Sun. It was essentially a film, I believe it's Norwegian, and it is about a big, giant, hairy yeti creature. So the producers of the film, or producers of Invasion of the Animal People, I should say, essentially took that original film and did some re-editing, as, you know, we are familiar, other people have done this. And so they took most of the elements out of the movie. They filmed some new segments. They brought in John Carradine to do a new kind of narrator role and turned it into Invasion of the Animal People, which certainly has a catchier title if you're a horror fan. There is only a poor print available on YouTube, but it was on Mystery Science Theater 3000, I prefer my films pure. I, I don't, I'm not a big mystery science theater fan. I, I can watch it and enjoy it if I've seen the film before, but if I've never seen it, I want to watch it in its original form. So I do want to find a good copy of this movie out there just to kind of compare it to Terror of the Midnight Sun, which I do have a copy of and is a little easier to find. 
Charles O'Neill did a couple of films you might have heard of, The Seventh Victim and Cry of the Werewolf. Orville Hampton, interesting career. So he's got movies like Rocket Ship XM and Jack the Giant Killer. He did lots of TV work. But he also did Mesa of Lost Women. Ooh, your favorite movie. I hate that film, and I don't use that word too often. That's a movie that is rough. So amongst his TV work, he did actually use a pseudonym to do some cartoons. He actually wrote for some cartoons like Scooby-Doo and the Super Friends. I don't think he wanted to get credit for it, but he probably had to eat, and he had some bills to pay. So that's probably why he went that route. Now, the film was directed by Roy Del Ruth. He had 121 films to his credit, dating back to 1916. But he only did two more films after this one, and he really doesn't have any other genre films. So not a lot to say about Roy Del Ruth. The Alligator People played on a double bill with Return of the Fly. Alligator People was not made by 20th Century Fox, although it was released by 20th Century Fox. Supposedly, they needed a second movie that was filmed in Cinemascope to go with Return of the Fly, and they purchased from Associated Pictures API. An independent producer named Jack Leewood actually made The Alligator People and then released by 20th Century Fox. There was actually a video game based on the Alligator People made in 1983 for the Atari 2600, believe it or not. And it it was legitimately based on the movie. Now, I, I am not a big game nerd, so I don't know much about it other than it was never released. There was a prototype available. Even the prototype is hard to find because some of the prototypes out there say the Alligator People, but then it's actually a different game on the the cartridge. I'm not sure what they were thinking, why they picked a 1959 film when there was other 1980s slasher films like Friday the 13th they could have chose from. It's kind of an odd choice, but I, you know, I'm sure there's some game nerds out there, and I say that affectionately, uh, who probably have heard about this game. Maybe they've even seen it or played it. I, I don't know much about it, but I thought that was kind of odd. Well, I don't remember when Pac-Man Fever was, but I could see those big old alligator heads on those tiny little human bodies just kind of swimming through the swamp and waka, 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 waka. I, you know, I could see that. I could, maybe that's where they were going for. I, I don't know. But uh, nonetheless, I thought that was a little bit of a curiosity. So... Yeah, The Alligator People. I enjoyed it. I really did. You know, it's Lon Chaney Jr., you know, not necessarily at the peak of his career, but I think he really does a good job with the sleazy character that he plays in this. And the haggard look that he had at that point, I think, just really kind of enhances his performance in this film. Yeah, I like it, too. It's it's just good, goofy, fun. Nothing I can really critique about it uh, other than just the very nature of it, which is... Good, silly fun. And it's coming out on Blu-ray. So, you know what? I The copy I have is not bad, but I would think this movie in 1959, you're probably going to be able to get a pretty good copy of it on Blu-ray. Whether or not you want to add that to your collection, that's up to you. If you're a purist, completist, yeah, you're probably going to want to want to add a copy of it to your, to your library if you haven't already. It's definitely worth checking out. Following the Alligator People, of course, what else was Lon Chaney Jr. doing at this point? Well... He hosted a television series called 13 Demon Street, which was kind of similar to The Veil with Boris Karloff. It uh, it was a short-run series. He is the, the host, so to speak, and, you know, it's a low budget. The stories were okay, not really any memorable cast involved, but uh, they were trying to recapture that Twilight Zone magic that was happening around this time. 
And uh, for a lot of years, you couldn't get all the episodes, but a few of the missing episodes have resurfaced. I believe one of them is uh, a Norwegian print and subtitled, but nonetheless, you can get all the episodes out there. I've seen a few. I haven't seen the entire series, but I do have it, and someday I do want to make my way through that. He also did a movie down in Mexico called La Casa del Terror, where he plays a zombie mummy course, sort of. It's an odd film. Even odder is the kind of re-edited version they did in 1964 called Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Not necessarily one of his best efforts, but nonetheless, he does kind of play a werewolf zombie mummy kind of creature that is worth checking out. And speaking of Mego, that is actually how they were able to release a Wolfman action figure. Yes, uh, because without, it's not the Wolfman. It's it, exactly. They didn't have to pay Universal a dime, which I thought that was kind of funny. Of course, he was also in that classic Route 66 episode with Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre around this time. He did some television work. There was the movie Witchcraft, where he plays a warlock, the haunted palace that he did with Vincent Price. He did the Last of the Mohicans television series, which was made up in Canada. He did a whole season's worth of that. And a film called House of the Black Death, which I don't believe I've ever seen that. I'm not sure that one stars John Carradine or not. Maybe, maybe not. Nonetheless, we get up to the point then where he makes Spider Baby in 1964, releases it later in the 1960s, and that is where we will be next as we conclude our look at the films of Lon Chaney Jr. American General Pictures imprisons you in a bloody web of terror. Spider Baby has the seductive innocence of Lolita and the savage hunger of a black widow. Spider Baby will give you nightmares forever. No man that loves her lives to love another. Her sweet kisses engulf you in a bloody web of horror. Spider Baby will thrill you, then kill you. Starring Spider Baby and Lon Chaney. For the horror thrill of your life, see Spider Baby from American General Pictures. Spider Baby will give you nightmares forever. When his employer was dying, a kind-hearted, but perhaps a little dim-witted chauffeur named Bruno promised he would take care of his children forever and ever. Years later, when relatives come hunting for their share of an inheritance, horrific shenanigans ensue among the deranged siblings. Richard. Yes? Please don't hate me. How many times have I told you it's not nice to hate? That's right. One of the lessons learned in Spider Baby. You probably questioned me when I said all three movies had to do with science. This isn't technically have to do with science, mad scientist type experiment thing. However, there is a syndrome called the Mary Syndrome. I would argue brings the science into this movie. <laughs> I, you know, I questioned, is this a real thing or not? I have to totally admit. Oh, I, did you look it up? I did Google. It's like, is it real? And I couldn't find anything okay. other than it kept guiding me back to this movie. So 
and maybe there is something related to it but i if there is i couldn't find it but i will i have to admit i'm like yeah i'll google it i'll go I'll, I'll take the take good the, I'll someone take had the to do it so someone had to do it i'm at a loss for how to start so please take it away well why don't we start by taking a look and see what was happening in the year it was released so this is the thing this movie was made spider baby was made in 1964 but would not get released until 1967, the very end of 1967. I guess let's talk about that first. The original title was Cannibal Orgy or The Maddest Story Ever Told, which I think would be a pretty bold title for 1964 because we hadn't hit that Night of the Living Dead crossover yet. 64, things were still, I think, kind of tame. We were starting to get some stuff around that time period. The producers went bankrupt. And the movie sat on a shelf until David Hewitt bought the rights in 1967. He changed the title to Spider Baby. And it did get like an official release at the very tail end of the year, like late December. But then it went into more wide release in 1968, which is why I think sometimes 1968 gets attached to this film. Interestingly enough, it went through a variety of different titles in 1968. It was titled at one point, The Liver Eaters. It was also known as Attack of the Liver Eaters, which, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, they they ate a lot of stuff in this movie, but they didn't eat any livers that I was aware of. Not that I saw. So I decided to go with 1968. What was happening in 1968? Now, I don't know if we did this or not. I know that we talked about Targets before, and maybe we did talk about 1968. So if I did, I'm just an old man and forgetting my stuff, but... <laughs> Some of this stuff sounded familiar, some of it didn't. So hopefully this is new. 1968, minimum wage was $1.60 per hour. You could also buy a movie ticket for $1.50. The Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia, which I particularly thought was interesting since we are pulling out of our nuclear arms treaty with Russia and the Cold War has decided to pop up its ugly head again. History repeating itself. Mm -hmm. 1968, we did have a couple of major assassinations, sadly. We had... The, uh, the loss of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th. The positive that did come out of that was that President Johnson did sign the Civil Rights Act of 1968 following his death. We also had the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy, who was in the early stages of running for president. He was assassinated on June 5th. We were at war with Vietnam. And the Winter Olympics were held in France. The Zodiac serial killer kills his or hers first victim. I guess we assume that it's a he. To the best of my knowledge, I don't believe we've ever caught the Zodiac killer. He claimed 37 deaths at one point where the police said that they only believe that he only killed 11. I guess the others, he might not have been, you know, caught on those. I don't know. Uh, I thought that was just kind of indicative of the changing times, I guess, the late 1960s. McDonald's sold its first Big Mac for 49 cents. In 1968, musically, the Beatles' White Album was released. And I didn't know this. It actually had mixed reviews when it first came out. Hmm. Now it's considered one of the greatest albums of all time. But at the time, it had mixed reviews. There was Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. Of course, that came from the movie The Graduate, which was one of the biggest hits of the year. There was Hello, I Love You by The Doors. And I Heard It Through the Grapevine by Marvin Gaye. Other movies of the day were Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Odd Couple, and a little indie film called Planet of the Apes. I wonder what ever happened to it. Hmm. From the horror genre, we had, of course, Rosemary's Baby. 
Witchfinder General, Dracula has risen from the grave, Curse of the Crimson Altar, the Green Slime targets. We had Destroy All Monsters, and we had a wonderful Japanese film called Kureneko, which have you seen that one? I have not. I don't know if I've seen it. Um, It's really good. And it has its anniversary being released in February. Which, beside the point, we'll talk about that later. Uh, anyway, yeah, highly recommend that if you haven't seen that. And, of course, Night of the Living Dead came out in 68, which I think it was interesting because some of the things that we see in this movie, it reminded me of the tone that we would see in Night of the Living Dead, which I always think that Night of the Living Dead was like the, the first step of the change of films that was completed with The Exorcist in 73. I think that during that five-year time period, we were in transition because you still had some gothic horror films being made, but Hammer was was dying out. And then really, The Exorcist changed everything because there's also, in Spider-Baby, there were elements of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I really wonder if there was any inspiration when they were making that, some of the scenes in that. Uh, movie or like in you know later like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 you know some of the crazy dinner scenes that would pop up in those movies harken back I think to Spider-Baby and I, I have to think that Spider-Baby had to have been some type of inspiration for those type of crazy scenes that we would get in years later if it was had been released in 64 when it was made it really could be considered ahead of its time it, it definitely fit better Four years later with the uh, the way horror was going and the other kinds of movies that were being released. Oh, absolutely. I, I can't imagine that this movie would have been released in 64. I, I don't know. We had Psycho in 60, and that was certainly a different type of film. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If, you know. With that four years difference, I think there's just a lot. Late 1960s culture and society was vastly different than what it was in 64. Think about the assassination of President Kennedy, many people say was a turning point, the end of Camelot, the end of innocence for the United States, the arrival of of really the true arrival of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war, just the, the arrival of the Vietnam War. I mean, the 60s was a very interesting decade. When you take a look at life in, say, 1960 and the types of films and television that was being made, and then you flash forward to 1969. Musically, there's drastic changes from what people were enjoying in 1960 to what they were enjoying in 69. And I think horror films, too, went through a, a huge transition. And then again, I think 1968 to 1973, horror films were, were they were transforming. And then when The Exorcist came out, it, like, it sealed the deal. I think Spider-Baby would have been ahead of its time in 64. Then again, and I'm going to contradict myself, it reminds me in a lot of ways of like a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie without the gore. There's no gore Mm. in it. It had these wacky relationships and characters, and I believe he was like mid-60s. So uh, yes and no, I guess. But either way, and this ties it to Herschel Gordon Lewis, it ultimately becomes a cult film with more awareness of it today than there ever was back then. This was a first time viewing for me. I had had this movie for a while. I'd never watched it. I'd seen bits and pieces of it. I was actually pleasantly surprised at at how well the movie was made. Obviously a low budget, but it looked good. And I was really surprised when I saw Lon Chaney's performance because I kept thinking, well, late 1960s, 
he was in much worse for wear. Well, having been made almost four years earlier, he was in better health in 64, whereas by the time you get to the late 1960s, he, he was not in good health and uh, was nearing the end of his film career. So I think that that explains to me, I was like, why he looked better than I thought he should in 67 or 68, because, well, it was filmed earlier. Um, I think his ruggedness, his just haggard look comes into play really well in this film. I, when I was watching the movie, I, I kept thinking, is he really not well? Because he was sweating an awful lot. And then when I did the research for the movie, found out that, yeah, it was over 100 degrees when they were filming this. And how he was just, I mean, yeah, they were having to wipe him down and, and keep him cool. And also, Sid Haig was actually ill during the making of this film. He had some type of flu and the heat wasn't helping. And they were giving him injections to keep him going on the set. What they were giving him, I don't know, but... It, it did look hot when they were making this film, and, and uh, certainly Lon Chaney looked like he was—he probably lost weight during the, the making of this movie. He did not look—he didn't—he didn't look comfortable at yeah, times in this film. That was my first note about him, and I, and I had not read that either. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is—you know—where he's come to. He's so haggard he can't—you know—move without sweating profusely. Did you read the little anecdote about Sid Haig uh, meeting Lon Chaney? I did, yeah. I, that was, I liked that. That was nice. You well, know. this is... It wasn't... You know, Sid Haig had been making films for a while at this... Well, again, so he started really making films around 1960, and he did lots of TV work in the 60s, including Star Trek. You couldn't think I'd get through a whole episode. No, and I wondered where you were going to get it. I've got two Star Trek references from this film. So... Sid Haig plays the character of Ralph. His credits include he played the Arroyal Apothecary in Batman in the episodes Tut's Cases Shut and The Spell of Tut. And he was the first lawgiver in the first season Star Trek episode Return of the Archons. Now that blew me away because I'm like, Sid Haig in Star Trek. So I had to go watch that episode and... You know, Sid Haig looks different, obviously, in the 1960s. And we see him now. He's We just visualize the beard. Sure enough, there were scenes where you could see he was in a hood. And he wasn't his voice. It was somebody else's voice. Because it was like this robotic, you know, otherworldly voice. But there was a certain a few scenes where you could see the light just right and see his face. And sure enough, he looked hmm. pretty much like he looked in Spider-Baby. He also did Galaxy of Terror, and of course, most people know him from House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell, and he's still cranking out films. His roles, I think, now are more so like cameo appearances. Someone pays him probably a ton of money to do this film, and so they could throw his name on it. But uh, nonetheless, I mean, he is he is a, a modern-day horror icon. I guess let's go with the rest of the cast while we're talking about it. Well, and I'll just, since I mentioned that little anecdote, I just want to say he was very nervous about meeting Lon oh. Chaney and so knocked on his trailer door one day to tell him he was needed on set and called him Mr. Chaney. And Lon said, I am not Mr. Chaney, I am Lon. And they got to be. Yeah, he said, he nice said I'm Lon, you're Sig, and Sid, and that's it. You know, yeah. so it's, yeah. Yeah. So they got, had a nice little relationship on the set. I also thought it interesting that Lon Chaney made his own mustard. Did you? That was in that same story. Sid I did. I would sit in the trailer, and often when they were talking, Lon was making his own mustard <laughs> with vodka. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah, I, I I did not hear that story. I, 
you know, I really, really want that that book to, to come out. And I don't know, maybe there's a reason why they haven't put it out by now. But that's I think that'd be interesting to, to hear Lon's perspective of the Cheney family. And then maybe that's why it hasn't. Maybe there's some negative stuff and maybe Ron has decided maybe some of these stories are best not released. Anyway. Okay, so with cast, we have the character of Emily, who is uh, one of the relatives, I guess, who yes, is... wasn't she the Yes, the, uh, wanting to kind of claim her, her stake on whatever the rest of the fortune was. That's played... Of course, so Carol Omart played the character of Emily. She... I thought she would, looked familiar immediately. She was Annabelle in House on Haunted Hill. She looked familiar to me because she resembles Meryl Streep. Yes, yes, she does. She does. One of the other films she did, I think it was the last movie of her career, another one of these films that I was like, what? I've never heard of it. The Spectre of Edgar Allan Poe. I have heard of that one. Uh, now, I had not heard of it, and it stars Robert Walker Jr., who played Charlie Evans in the first season Star Trek episode, Charlie X. Double whammy. Uh, actually, yes, yeah, so I guess there's three references I've got here. That movie is on my wish list now. That's hard to find. It's not been released on home media. The only copy on YouTube is a poor VHS copy in Spanish. And it doesn't seem to be available on a lot of the usual bootleg websites either. So I have actually seen that. I say that with a disclaimer. It was at the Enid Drive-In when I was a child. I remember oh nothing about it. I, and I'm, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, and I'm like, so Robert Walker Jr., it was an odd actor. He's an odd character. And certainly, you know, and I'm trying to think. I think I've actually, I think I've met him once before. I think I actually have his autograph. It was down at the Trek Expo in Tulsa, I believe. I don't really remember anything about the interaction, which is why I'm like trying to remember. Is like I think I got his autograph. I don't know. He's always plays a slightly off character, and I think that might be who he is in real life. So anyway, Quinn Redeker played Peter, the other relative. And the, I just want to say I really liked him. In this I did movie. too. I did too. So this movie—it's hard to tell sometimes. Is this a comedy? Is it a horror? It's a weird mix. He plays it. Sort of comically, but not over the top. And it just, he was, it was very captivating when he was on screen. There were certain elements of this film that made me think of like, this would be almost like a Vincent Price film where there's horror elements, but then you've got some dark humor thrown in for good measure. So, uh, I, yeah, I did like him. I so really the, liked and him. this guy, please go on. He's got a very interesting resume. Yeah. You know, so I, he did lots of television work. I, I, I saw it was the one thing I pulled out of that. And I immediately saw that he did episodes, uh, quite a few episodes, I think, of The Six Million Dollar Man, you know, is one of my all-time favorite uh, television shows. What else did you find on, on him? He began his, uh, yeah, I believe began his career with several uncredited roles, but in big movies, Airport and Dramatist Strain. In the 70s, he was in some big, high-profile movies, Ordinary People. He was actually one of the four people credited for the story of the deer hunter oh wow uh so this is, this is a guy i want to know more about it sounds very interesting but the most interesting thing one of his tv projects was return to the bat cave the, the story oh, yeah about, yeah he played 
Vincent Price. Oh my god. So I want to dig that out. I want to watch that. Oh, but, uh, absolutely. This, this guy, he's my new fascination. I want to learn more about this guy. That's crazy. Now see, that's now I want to see that as well. Okay. So who is the I'm trying to remember these names. Peter's love interest, the secretary in this film, was that Anne or was that Virginia? Uh, that was Anne. Virginia okay. was one of the daughters. Anne was played by Mary Mitchell. I really liked her in this film in an odd kind of way. She seemed oblivious to the craziness that was going on. She seemed to thrive just like Peter did, too. It's like, I don't know. He's just like, oh, here's this crazy, let's play spider. Sure, I'll let you tie me to a chair. Exactly. You know, now we're having fun, aren't we? You know, she just seemed oblivious to what was going on. And, of course, I loved how much like... Later on in the film with uh, Carol Omar, was like, oh, let's just strip down to our bra. So let me segue here, side, do a sidebar. I thought it was absolutely weird and twisted that Carol Omar's character of Emily would just randomly start pulling out sexy negligee 90s out of the closet and then start prancing around in her room Holding them up and twirling around, looking at herself in the mirror in these gowns. And I'm like, you know, okay, it's one thing, I guess, if you wear a gown. You're wearing, like, sexy negligee in a creepy house. God knows who wore that before her. (laughs) It's also an interesting side note from the side note. She does that for an awfully long time. She does. Because they show her scene and then a bunch of other things happen. And she's still going on. And then she's still twirling. So I'm sure that was maybe... uh, a, an editing snafu, but uh, yes, that I, I don't think there was any snafu that. about that. Somebody's <laughs> like, it's kind of like the uh, zombie that we originally watched. Let's zoom in the camera in on the crotch. Yeah, that there was no mistake. But I did find, of course, you know, Ralph is like hanging outside the window upside down looking at her. Finally, he looks at her for quite a while before she finally notices and then she screams. So, anyway, Mary Mitchell, she has her scene towards the end of the movie where she just has the Captain Kirk shirt that randomly gets ripped to shreds. This was actually, this was interesting. She did Panic in the Year Zero, which I've seen that movie with, I think, Ray Milland, I think, is in that one. That's a fun movie. This was her last film role before... (laughs) And this is like how she got involved in this movie so many years later. Looney Tunes back in action. In 2003, she played a, a script editor or advisor played that character in the movie. Hmm. I'm like, so how did that happen? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's like you, your career ended in the 60s and now here you are decades later and I'm going to make my comeback in an uncredited appearance in Looney Tunes. Bizarre. I also love to see Manton Moreland yeah. um, as the messenger. Manton Moreland, of course, was well known for playing the character of Birmingham Brown in the Charlie Chan film series. He was also in King of the Zombies, which I love that movie, politically correct as it may be, and uh, the pseudo-sequel Revenge of the Zombies. He was also in Tarzan's New York Adventure, another Tarzan reference. So in the 1950s, when the civil rights movement happened and there really started to be a push for, I guess, more respect towards African-American actors, Asian-American actors... Manton Moreland kind of got put on a bad list for a while because, you know, because he had done the character Birmingham Brown. People thought that, well, he was, you know, he was hurting his community by taking on that role. 
But, you know, I would argue that he was a comedian. And, yes, I mean, his character is kind of over the top at times. But I don't think he does anything that's really horrifically wrong in those movies, taken into context the time that they were made. He's playing a, an actor who is is scared in these crazy situations, and that's a character that could be played by, you know, a white or black actor. Now, they obviously did it because he had an expression and it was a stereotypical opinion of the time, but I, I enjoy him in those Charlie Chan films, and, you know, I, I think that Again, if you take into to context when these films were made, I think that that's how you can enjoy them. There's obviously things wrong with them politically, incorrect as they may be. I mean, certainly you've got Asian, uh, the, the lead character of Charlie Chan is played by Caucasian actors. Unfortunately, you know, his performance in those films put on a bad list for a while. And he wasn't really until the 1960s that he started to have a resurrection in his career because then there started to be, well, maybe we should pay some respect to these actors who really, they were acting when many of us couldn't act in mainstream films. And did they really do anything that was that bad? I mean, some more than others. I don't think Manson Moreland necessarily did. He was even considered at one point in the 1950s to be a member of the Three Stooges. When Shemp Howard passed, Mo wanted Manson Moreland to be on the list because I believe Manson Moreland, I, I believe, did a couple of Three Stooges shorts. But the studio said, no, this that's not going to fly. But Mo was very, you know, forward thinking and thought that Manson would have fit well. Hmm. I think that would have been an entirely different mix for the Stooges, but I think it might have worked because he was a good comedic actor. Here, of course, he's, you know, he plays the messenger and, you know, he's, Certainly has kind of a, a, a few comedic lines, you know, like when he's trying to ring the doorbell and he's like, you know, oh, somebody please be home, please be home. You know, it, I thought that was funny. He uh, unfortunately, his career never did really resurface. Of course, this was filmed in 64, just right when he was starting the resurrection of his career. He ended up dying in 1973 and uh, only he had bit parts here and there. So his his career never did really Resume to where it was in its heyday of the of the forties and early fifties. I, I liked seeing him here in this movie. It was he was his character as short as it was. I the crazy thing that he was driving at the beginning of the movie I thought was funny. So yeah, I what was that a scooter, a cart, a bicycle? It looked like an ice cream truck to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? It was not. It was a swamp buggy. It was not a swamp buggy. No, no. He was. How long was he driving on that little thing? He's like out in the middle of this nowhere country. <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, I was like, you know, to me, that didn't seem like a vehicle you'd want to be on for long journeys. And then he's just carrying a simple envelope. I thought there'd be like, is there a trunk back there or something? But Do you have anything on the actor Carl Schanzer? I do not. I don't either. However, I just want to say... Carl Schanzer? <laughs> <laughs> on the most part, the acting is pretty good in this movie, and I think Chaney is really good. I, I really like his performance. It's sweet. Uh, I like it. But the one flaw was this guy. He plays Schlocker, the attorney. And I just thought he his performance stuck out from the others. It was definitely more comedic, but it just it didn't fit to me, the tone. Plus... Well, there, so, was, there was a lot of tones in this film yeah. because there was certainly creepy elements and then you have the 
Emily, who was really kind of playing a bitchy character, and then, you know, Peter is just like, he's absorbing everything, is like, I think this is wonderful, you know? Oh, look, you know, we've got childlike people over here on the corner. <laughs> How fantastic. And then you got this crazy attorney who is just, you know, looks like he could sell used cars or something. So, yeah. Oh, I do know that he had only six credits and this was his last. And I will claim, since I didn't like him to this, it's because he was a bad actor. But that's just me. He was not a good actor, no. Uh, oh, I forgot when the speaking of the cast, skipped over the, uh, the two girls. Uh, so we had Virginia, played by uh, Jill Banner. Uh, this was actually her debut film in 64. She did lots of TV work and kind of got a lot of praise for her performance in this movie. She was, of course, the one who was the playing spider. The dark-haired one. Yeah, the dark-haired one. She left acting, though, not too long after this was released. In uh, 1982, at the age of 35, she was killed by a drunk driver she was just getting back into the Hollywood world. She was actually working for Marlon Brando at the time, going over potential scripts for him. Um, and she was just driving in the hills of California and gets killed by a drunk driver. So a very sad end for her. The other actress uh, was Beverly Washburn, played the other young um, girl, Elizabeth. Here's my last Star Trek reference. Wow, loaded with them. I know. She plays the character of Lieutenant Galloway, in the second season episode, The Deadly Years. This is the episode where they all age. And she is... Uh, she didn't wear red, but she but she certainly could have. Because she is the only one of the landing party that goes down that ends up dying. She ends up aging more rapidly and ends up dying very early on in the episode. One of her early films was actually Superman and the Mole Men hmm. in the early 1940s. She played a young girl. She was also an old yeller. And uh, she did lots of TV work and actually just did a film. She is still alive and making movies, apparently. She did Tales of Frankenstein, the movie that was covered over at Monster Kid Radio, hmm. which makes me even more curious about that now. So I keep forgetting about that. I need to... I know. Now it. that I know that she's in it, I'm like really interested. And I'm, I don't know if that was mentioned on Monster Kid Radio, you know, and, and I know that uh, Derek loves Star Trek. So um, anyway... That's uh, a very interesting cast, certainly, and, and certainly we got a lot of Star Trek references out of this one, so uh, I love that. <laughs> I have no Doctor Who, though. I Yeah, nothing on Doctor Who on any of these, so sorry. Maybe, at least you mentioned it, that's at all At least that I counts. mentioned it, but uh, yeah, I think if you, anything that comes out in the 1960s, early 70s time frame, you can connect to Star Trek in some way, shape, or form. I was watching Mannix last night, and Barbara Babcock was on there and immediately was like, oh yeah, she's from Star Trek and, and the Plato Stepchildren episode. And then I think it was a couple nights ago, I forget, there was another episode of Mannix as I'm going to bed and like there were two other people that were in Star Trek. You're watching so. an awful lot of Mannix lately. And I only watched like 10 or 15 minutes of it. It's, it's like when I go to bed and I'm surfing, I always stop and say, oh, this is an interesting cast. And I think there was Barry Atwater who played Abraham Lincoln, I think, and... Was it, did he play Abraham Lincoln or did he play in Amok's Time? I don't know. There was another Star Trek crazy reference. I'm like, any 1960s or early 70s television, you don't have to go too far to, to see some Star Trek actors. So Doctor Who's a little harder. Okay, so this was written and directed by Jack Hill, who is well known for his work on, of course, The Wasp Woman, 
And the terror. He's uncredited for those films. Why is he? I wanted to ask you. Why is he uncredited? I I believe I remember reading to where he was like working, and Roger Corman would allow him to do learn, I guess, essentially, and and so he didn't get credited for his work, but he did do, I guess, learning the trade, so to speak. Now he did do the four Boris Karloff films: House of Evil, Fear Chamber, Isle of the Snake People. Alien Terror, of course, films by any other name. He was the director for the the U.S. scenes, so he would have been the one who directed Boris Karloff. Mm. Uh, and in the 1970s, he went down the kind of exploitation route doing Coffee and Foxy Brown, well-known uh, for lots of his work. And Jack Hill, I recognize from Dementia 13, which... Uh, was Francis Ford Coppola's maybe yes. first or one of his first movies, yeah. you know, which I kind of like. So he, he wrote that, uh, didn't direct it, obviously. The film had a budget of 60000 we talked about earlier. Cheney was paid $2,500, which was more than any of the other cast who I think they were paid, I think, was it $100 a day, maybe? Not even that, I don't think. Yeah, and I read that the rental of the car was as much each day as they paid the actors. Probably, I think so. I mean, the movie was made in 12 days, so not a long time was spent uh, on the filming of it. And it was in August, so again, as we mentioned, it was very, very hot. But again, I think it was well made. I mean, and I guess maybe that's, you know, Jack Hill, of course, you know, I think was a good director. And obviously, so he makes this, makes this movie in 12 days, which... He learned under Roger Corman, but obviously he learned that you can spend more than three days on a movie, and I think it paid off. I think that, that visually this this film, I think it looked well made, and, and I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, there was certainly some crazy elements. The dinner scene, Ralph goes out and gets gets the, the cat. I think that was the part I wondered about uh, Carla. Well, she was about. concerned. She was concerned. She Surprisingly wasn't bothered by the dinner sequence Mm. because you didn't see the cat get hurt. I was worried there for a moment. I was like, oh gosh, here we go. And she looked at me and she says, well, what happens to the cat? I said, I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. We'll see this together. That, like I said, that whole sequence, that dinner sequence, just it screamed Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me. I don't know. And the house and the crazy people living in it, you know, I think tarantulas that were kept in the the desk, that made me kind of cringe. Especially when the guy's sitting there sticking his hands, is like, dude, it, you know. And I, this was funny. This Carla mentioned this. You know, like, so this guy's like sneaking around in the middle of the night in this house while smoking his cigar, and she says, "Oh, they're never gonna smell that." <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, that's very true. Yeah, the, the you know the creepy people in the basement, the the aunt and uncle who were living in the hole in the basement, and the, the reveal at the end. I had a brief moment where I thought of freaks, but then the, the the makeup work reminded me of Lugosi's Logover from Island of Lost Souls, which I don't know if that was the aunt or the uncle, but the hairy face and stuff really yeah. harkened back to that for me anyway. Hmm. You got a better look at it than I did because they didn't show it very much. They didn't linger on that. What, did you have this on DVD or? Uh, recorded it from TCM this week because it was on. Okay. I, I watched it off YouTube because my DVD wasn't a good a copy. It was, I had recorded off television at some point and it wasn't a good print. And what I found on YouTube was actually a better print. It was much clearer and the audio was a lot more 
clear the video. The DVD I have was I need to upgrade because it's I actually like this movie well enough that I mm. I would wouldn't mind having a better copy of it in my collection. So I think you liked it a little better than me. I I have to tell you, everyone I I'm assuming everyone has something in a horror movie that is the thing that is distasteful to them that is almost going too far that they don't really like for me it is the inbreeding mm-hmm. the mental i'm gonna say it please forgive me retardation of the kids you know sid haig acting like he's a baby i had the same problem with the baby when i watched that from 1973 that is mm-hmm. just yeah uncomfortable subject matter for me and hey it's doing its job, I guess, as a horror movie because I was unsettled and uncomfortable about that. I guess the inbreeding was mentioned, but I guess it. I think it could have been a lot worse. I think Virginia and Elizabeth. I mean, they they could have now if they would have looked and acted more like Sid Haig's character of Ralph, then I probably would have had more of a problem with it. But they kind of just came off as slightly demented. I I didn't think. When I looked at their characters, I didn't think inbreeding. I just think, you know, these are some twisted girls. Ralph, he wasn't physically deformed. It was more of a mental thing with him. And I didn't think, honestly didn't think inbreeding with him either. Now, I think if this movie was to get remade today, they would probably go the route of like the hills have eyes type of mutation and stuff. And then... Okay, then it, that's where it crosses a line for me. Like, yeah, then I don't like the inbreeding aspect of it. To yeah. me, I just, I, although it was mentioned and obviously a part of it, I think it was from a physical aspect, I felt like that was downplayed a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I got over that. So I was watching and then I was, I wasn't really enjoying it. And then the part where Schlo- uh, yeah, Schlocker is wandering through the house, that stretches on forever. It does, and it does. Yeah. I just said, you know, I can't do anymore. I turned it off, went to bed. Next day, I finished it, and I enjoyed from that point on much more and ended up with a good feeling about this, but I can't really say I liked it. I like this one, and for some reason going into it, I thought, this is a movie you're going to like better than I am because you like some of the 70s movies. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I certainly like the 70s a lot more than Carla. We know that she doesn't, but... There are some that you like in the 70s, and I'm like, yeah, you know, right. okay. I don't know. I For whatever reason, this one, and I was really surprised that Carla liked this one. I thought, yeah, oh, this is going to be too much for, maybe I think because it was black and white and had Lon Chaney Jr. in it. I think if this would have been made in the 70s, then obviously it would have looked, it would have been in color, it would have had a grittier look to it, and might have felt a bit more dirty kind of like an eaten alive type thing where I was like, I need to take a bath afterward. I think that's that's why I this movie, having been made in 64, even by like 1967, 68 standards, I mean, visually, most movies coming out of that time period had transitioned to color. We still had some black and white films, but most films were transitioning to color by that time period. I think that would have changed it for me. I think I, think I would have enjoyed it less had it not had Cheney or the classic black and white look to it and again like i said cheney i i expected i I sort of didn't look forward to watching this when we picked it i thought oh he's gonna be at his worst you know his his illness has progressed but like i said again uh, he was really really good in that and i believe did i read a, a trivia piece that the long speech he had and i don't remember 
the particulars of it. But about the toy, getting the toys or whatever. Yeah, but afterwards the crew yeah. applauded. Yeah, I read the same thing, and, and I remember the speech, and I'm thinking it may just be one of those moments where, like, they maybe they weren't expecting him to be. And he was good in that scene, which is that's one of the scenes that I, you know, I was like, I didn't know at that point this had been made three or four years earlier. And I just was like, wow, he's just doing a lot better in this film than I thought he would. And so then again, you know, if you look at, because we'll talk about it here in a second, of course, when this was released and what he was doing at this time in his film career, yeah, he was at the end of his of his career. Well, 64, he was having a bit of a renaissance with, you know, because that was the same year he did The Haunted Palace. Uh, it was 63 or 64 with Vincent Price. So, you know, he was... Having, you know, physically he was still struggling, obviously, but he he was having a bit of a resurgence of popularity around this time period. The movie Witchcraft, have you seen that one? No. That's a really good movie, too. I had forgot about that one, and he he looks and acts similar to, well, I mean, not acts, but I mean, he looks and and, uh, his performance is similar in that as opposed, like with uh, Spider Baby is what I'm trying to say. He's he's certainly as haggard, but much better than what he would be a few years later. So Witchcraft is actually, if you haven't seen it, that's a film worth checking out. He plays a warlock in that one hmm. uh, with a family of, of witches and warlocks, if I remember correctly. So not, not a bad performance in that. There are a couple of things that I liked about this movie, little uh, details. Did you notice in the score, occasionally the theme that was playing... Itsy Bitsy Spider. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. That was funny. Uh, did you catch the Wolfman references? Mm. I, I thought those were nice when Uncle Peter and the the secretary are driving because they're not going to spend the night at the house. He asks so her, they go off into the bars and get drunk and they can't find a hotel yeah. and yeah. yeah. He asks her if if she likes horror movies and they talk about werewolf movies and then Lon Chaney himself mentions that there's going to be a full moon. So I had to kind of smile when that I happened. yes. I also liked the ending and spoiler alert but we're to take it that the daughter was ralph's daughter right because he had um attacked well well first of all did uncle peter marry the secretary is that who because uh, i know so so Ra- uncle peter's narrating this from ralph the attacked emily oh that's true he didn't have enough time to to do anything with with uh then Dan. what is the point about the little girl seeing a spider and you think well, is it just because it runs in the family yes remember oh. he makes a reference he says my branch of the family hasn't had any of this illness okay. before okay and well no no it does and when the little girl's looking at the spider okay. it seems to indicate that yeah, it does run. Maybe it's skipped over, but it's it's there. Gotcha, gotcha. So that wasn't... Ralph did not attack the secretary, and that was not right. He, his well, baby he, instead he had, of... He had taken her to the basement, but there wasn't enough time for him to do anything, whereas very obviously... How, how do you know how long it takes him? Well, that's, 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 <laughs> I guess I don't know the longevity of Ralph, but uh, he clearly did attack Emily. You know, because yeah, she true. was, That's, course, yeah, I got she was obviously, she had flipped out after that. Yeah, I like that ending, too. I thought that was kind of a good little twist and opened the door for a sequel. I got to say. did you know there was a sequel written? I did not know that. Yes. It was called Vampire Orgy because originally this was called Cannibal Orgy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned that we had some feedback on our Facebook page about Spider Baby. So I'm just going to real quick share 
what some other people said about the movie. What I do is I, you've heard me before, I track the movies I watch in IMDb and I am able to then share that to Facebook when I'm watching. So what I'll do with a movie we're gonna watch is share it to the Facebook group page and that's a reminder for people that time to watch these movies we're gonna be recording. The first comment was from Richard Chamberlain. He said, we watched this last night. Thank you, Richard, for that feedback. <laughs> Jonathan Angarillo said, just watched as well. Christopher Page said that this has been on his list for a while, but he hasn't gotten around to it. Jonathan then responded that same with him, but thanks to us, the Classic Horrors Club, he finally watched it. Rich, we've done some good in the world. Uh, well, that's that's what I said. We, you know, yep. our, our job is done. Yes. Uh, we, we've... we've uh, you know, if we can inspire anyone to, to watch any of these films that, you know, with us, whether it's before or after, then I feel like we're doing some good in the world. Right. Paul Minturn said that he watched it in a horror chat room a couple nights ago. Now, I'm curious about that. I don't even know how you watch a movie in a horror chat room, but that's uh, interesting. Probably similar to what Derek, Derek did, did yeah. you know, like at, at uh, Halloween time. So, yeah. I'd like to do that sometime. And then finally, our friend Chris Franklin said he saw it on TCM a few years back. So bizarre, but so intriguing. Cheney is great in it. And I would agree with that. I would agree. He would live until 1973, but... His, you know, acting days are over. He died on July 12th of heart failure at the age of 67 due, of course, to his years of, of drinking and smoking. A kind of a sad end to to a career that, if you know, you look back at Ed Lon in his, you know, 1940s heydays, and he was like, we said earlier, he was a good-looking guy. He was a lead actor. And I think this is a classic case of his name allowed him to continue to be cast in films in the 50s and 60s because he was Lon Chaney Jr., but his performances in the 50s and 60s are are pale in comparison to what he did in the 40s. And, you know, I think for most other actors, he probably wouldn't have been able to get as much work as he did. His name got him through the door a lot. He had moments where he was still able to, to pull off good performances, like we talked about in Spider Baby. But by the end of his career, I think that he just didn't have anything left, and he had just essentially drank himself to death, really. And it's a very, very sad ending for what was really a, a memorable career. He is one of the icons of horror films. Yep. God rest his soul. Indeed. Despite the sad ending, this was fun. I, I enjoyed... Whenever we take a look at these actors, I think it's always fun to kind of do the beginning, middle, and end. Yep. We have talked about maybe doing the same to you know several other actors, but Lon Chaney Sr. is one. Now, obviously... Because he died at a younger age, the time span is going to be different, and we're going to be dealing with really at least two of the films would be silent films. The last one, obviously, would be The Unholy Three, the sound film, which was his only sound movie. But I think maybe that's something we might do maybe later on this year. You know, we've talked about it, and I think it'll be fun to see. Uh, Cheney did do some, of course. We know, you know, like Hunchback of Notre Dame is not really a horror film, but he did do Phantom of the Opera. But he did do some other horror films that I think it'd be fun to see and uh, and talk about and, and take a look at. Because, of course, Lon Chaney Sr. is is the master of of makeup and really was an inspiration for many in the 
in the days and decades that followed. So, yep. So we'll add that to the list of our our growing list of topics. We'll be list. doing this podcast forever and ever. That's the plan. Let's take a break and we'll come back and finish up with our new business, our regular features. Well, a few million years ago, most of the land of the earth must have looked just about like this. A great vast swamp. It was the cradle of life where we all started. Slime and ooze the bottom of a spot. You're completely cynical, aren't you, Doc? <laughs> I imagine that did sound a bit depressing. I didn't mean it to. I'm sorry. Richard, we finally have a good month in February with some releases, a, a lot of them. I'm going to try to mention them pretty quickly here. On the 5th of February, which actually we're getting a show out the first of the month, so this will be tomorrow if you're listening on our release date, a giallo called... The Fifth Chord. I watched this last night. For some reason, it was in the back of my mind. It's like one of those movies you hear about and you put it on a list because you want to see and then you don't remember why you put it on the list. Very good movie. The person doing the commentary for it said he, he believes it's one of the best Giallo movies ever made. And I, I would agree, certainly quality-wise. This one perplexes me. On the 12th, Arrow Video is releasing Horror Express again on Blu-ray. I say again because it came out on Severin Home Video. I have that Blu-ray, and my first thought was, why another one? You're talking about upgrades and stuff. I do not see any special features that are different. The only thing is that this Arrow version has a commentary track, which the Severin version does not. So I'm going to dig into that. Who does the commentary? Oh, here's the thing. It's two people. One of them is Kim Newman, who... Drives me crazy on commentaries. I, I yes, I know who you're talking about, and and uh, yeah, I, so I, yeah. I'll be watching that and writing about it in a couple weeks on my blog. I am going to listen to the commentary because uh, I love that movie, and maybe that'll bring something new to it. But just overall, I'm questioning getting another version of Horror Express. On the twelfth, also is Scream and Scream Again from 1970, Kino Lorber. And then The Haunted Castle from 1921, which is an early, early silent film by F.W. Murnau from Nosferatu fame. I've seen that, and I think oh, yeah? I may have that as an hmm. extra. On I don't film. think it's actually a horror movie. It's like a crime thriller, but yeah. it's called The Haunted Castle. Yeah, it's one of those pseudo, let's name it something that it really isn't. Then a week later, on the 19th, we have from Shout Factory, The Return of the Vampire. And you had some interesting news about this that I didn't know. And I saw something about this on Facebook. So uh, someone had gotten a kind of a, a preview copy of it. And supposedly there are some pretty big errors on the disc or on the packaging. There's a big error as far as the synopsis on the back of the case that makes reference to events that don't happen in the film. A, they change characters around, and the picture, and I did see this image, picture on the back is not from Return of the Vampire at all. It looks like it's from Return of the Ape Man, which, yeah, it's, I think, uh, that was the movie it was from. Definitely not from Return of the Vampire. Surprising that that would get past 
because they put so much other attention on that kind of stuff. That That's odd that that would get past editors at some point. Obviously, somebody not doing their research. And, you know, I haven't purchased any of these Shout Factory Blu-rays that are coming out of the older movies like The Wasp Woman, Return of the Vampire. And I'm just curious, and maybe any listeners can let us know, how are those versions? Do they have any extra features? Are they worth investing in? Or is it just another quick release of a movie because i'd like to know they're doing an awful lot of them and they're doing an awful lot of hammer ones as well yeah and i just i don't know if they're worth investing in if you've got other versions of it you know that's I, i'm to the point where i know a lot of people just as immediately as soon as a movie comes out on blu-ray they just it's a blind buy bang they go for it i guess i'm, I'm a little more picky because i don't know just because it's getting a blu-ray release doesn't mean it's been remastered and doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's true high definition. So unless it, it says specifically this has been remastered or it's a director's cut or you know what have you, I don't even consider it because I'm like, well, you know, I'm happy with what I've got. Is it really that much of a better image? And I think it also depends on what the film is. I mean, Hammer films, those are on my wish list to get some of the Dracula films on Blu-ray, obviously. I don't know. I guess I'm just a little pickier than that. I don't do the automatic blind buy because I've, from my mind, I'm like, why would I want to spend money on a movie that I already have that isn't much better anyway? That movie or that money could be spent on something I don't have in my collection. Yes. On the 19th, we also have Color Me Blood Red from 65. That's uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, his third movie after Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs. That's from Arrow, if I didn't say that. Also on the 19th from Universal Pictures Home Entertainment. How often do we have a release that's from Universal Pictures? That's the 1979 version of Dracula. Probably we wouldn't normally talk about it, but it's often lumped in with you know, classic horror and versions of Dracula and everything. So I, I, you know, I don't have that version of my collection, and I need to. I need to see that again. I probably haven't seen it since it was originally released, and it got a lot of publicity last year especially with that issue of little shop of horrors that did the whole issue devoted to it and i I need to see that again and the soundtrack coming out which i have that soundtrack thanks to my good friend richard yes santa claus actually oh gotta give credit to santa yeah on the 26th the the last tuesday in february we have willard from 2003 just mentioning it. it that's the remake from Shout, but we did the Willard episode. And did you ever watch? You've still got my DVD. Did you I, ever watch it? I'm ashamed to say I have had that DVD for like I think two years now. <laughs> I so I mean I always think about it, and then I'm like, gosh, I've got like this to watch for the podcast or this. No, I don't. I need to either. Okay, here's a promise I make to you. I need to watch that in the next 30 days, or by the time we record, you will have that back in your in your possession. And again. I will watch Deluge and give that back to you at the same time. See, I keep forgetting you have that. So, <laughs> The Mole People, that is one I'm going to buy blind because I've never seen it. I don't know that it's been readily available recently, but that's coming out from Shout on Blu-ray. It was part of those two classic sci-fi oh, right. collections that were originally Blu-ray or uh, Best Buy exclusives. I don't know how much better the picture's going to look on Blu-ray, but I think it's just the availability of it because I think those are hard to find. Those sets are hard to find now. So, yeah. 26 also from Shout, The Vengeance of She. That's another Hammer movie I talked about. Probably one of my least favorite Hammer movies of the ones I've seen. Not getting that on Blu-ray. 
Beast of the Yellow Knight from 1971. That was an Eddie Romero film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was made the year before Twilight People, which I think we loved, and it also starred John Ashley. So that's I've I've seen that one. Oh yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, it's coming out uh, from VCI, and then finally on the 26th, Invasion of the Blood Farmers from 1972. Coming out from our friends at Severin. I I have that trailer on one of the yeah 42nd Street trailer collections that I have. And there's so many movies that they show trailers of that you've just never heard of. And I remember Invasion of the Blood Farmers. The title alone, I mean, I know that it's a bad movie, but it's been on my kind of guilty pleasure wish list. Birthdays for the month of February. Richard, did you know on February 10th, 1906, Lon Chaney Jr. was born? Uh, I've heard of him. Whatever yeah. became of Lon? I yeah, don't know. yeah. That's the big birthday of the month. There's a lot of birthdays. Some of my favorites to mention would be February 4th, 1936, Gary Conway. One of the Garys that was so entertaining at Monster Bash. Oh, yeah. And uh, from what I was a teenage... Frankenstein, right? Yes, yep. yes. Couple Dark Shadows birthdays february 5th 1941 david selby quentin collins himself and february 27th 1910 the late joan bennett february 13th 1938 oliver reed we just saw him in the brood that we watched a week ago and then finally february 17th 1938 yvonne romaine from curse of the werewolf we talked about her when i had the fortune of going and and seeing her speak about that movie oh and then of course february birthdays the most important of all jeff owens was born on the 16th as was jonathan angarella different years february birthdays for us so, so we say a, a happy early birthday now to both of you gentlemen yes and i should have mentioned that we should have done birthdays before february releases because then people would know what they could send me for my birthday this is true you should do that yeah Anniversaries, movies that came out in February over the years. On the 2nd in 1970 was Scream and Scream Again, premiered in Hollywood. February 3rd, 1941, The Devil Commands. And Richard, this is how bad I'm getting. We covered The Devil Commands, didn't we? Yes, we did. Okay, Yes. good. That was our middle Karloff film, yes. February 11th, 1971, Who Slew Auntie Roo opened in the UK. Love that movie. Hope we do it someday. February 21st, 1968, The Power. The Power is a George Powell science fiction movie. I recorded it at my mom's house on TCM. I have tried to get through that movie three times. Not that it's bad. I just don't have enough time when I'm there to get through it. But I really like what I've seen so far. And I'm thinking about purchasing that. I think it's available on Warner Archive. Have you seen The Power? I have. You know, it... It was. <laughs> For some reason, that movie is like, okay, I saw it. It didn't uh, It didn't stick with something me. Something about it in, intrigues me. There's a lot of good people in it. It's got that yeah. 70s vibe, and it's sort I of be, trippy you know, it's sci-fi. I wouldn't be opposed to rewatching again. For some reason, when I saw it the first time, it didn't stick with me. Yeah. But sometimes I'll go back and revisit films, and yeah, then it does. So. And then February 28th, 1941, The Monster and the Girl. That one I do remember that we covered back on our Donovan's Brain episode. I believe so, yes. Yep. TV Terror Guide. What is coming up on TV? Sven Gulli, tonight, February 2nd, The Giant Claw from 57. I adore that movie. It, that's, the, you know, I have had... You were 
Were you there when we saw that on the big screen? Were you there? No, I was not. Okay, so they played that at Cinema Gogo. So I can say I've seen the giant claw on the big screen. And uh, yeah, that was that's a lot of fun. That's so bad it's good, I guess is where. I mean, that that's an iconic creature, I guess you call it that. Speaking of Cinema Gogo, what I did see at Cinema Gogo was Abbott and Costello go to Mars. Yes. And that's what Sven Gulli is showing on the 9th. Richard, what's going on with you with horror and classic horror and writing outside of our little podcast? You know, January is always kind of a quiet month post-holidays and such. I did a few articles on uh, this past month, not really horror-related. I, I did a article on Stan and Ollie and my thoughts on Laurel and Hardy in general, and then I also did a thing on Bob Hope and being Crosby's Road movies. But somewhat related to the genre, in February this month, I'm going to be doing the Thin Man series. Uh, I saw this for the first time several years ago and love them. I know that Derek over at Monster Kid Radio loves these movies. And they're they're not horror, but they're murder mysteries usually. Have you ever seen the Thin Man movies? I never have. Oh, Sad to say. William Powell and Myrna Loy are just so fantastic uh, as Nick and Nora Charles. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I knew these were films that Carla would resonate with. And so we... They always do like a Thin Man marathon on Turner Classic Movies right at the end of the year, January 1st. And so got them all on uh, on the DVR and introduced her to the first film. And yeah, she was hooked. So we're going to be doing uh, the entire film series, roughly two films a week on the blogs, uh, Kansas City Cinephile, KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And that's about the only thing for sure that I can say. I did uh, I did talk about The Indestructible Man over at the uh, Memiverse Monthly Audio Cast. That should be coming up the first week of February. Any day now. Yeah. and uh, on the first. Yeah. I actually threw that together. I always, you know, sometimes like, what am I going to do this month? And I, oh my gosh, I'll, I can kind of, you know, tie this in in a roundabout way because I kind of talk about zombie and attack of the moon zombies i pulled it together don't ask me how but i was i somehow was able to get everything in there i haven't done anything over at dread media i i woefully was absent in january they were doing action films but i do have a couple of ideas i don't want to say because i will probably drop the ball but there's a few things i i might do over at dread media or i guess it all depends on when uh des posts them but some films that have been kind of on my idea list to to cover over there uh, well, I can mention them. That the Limehouse Gollum, which is a movie I've been wanting to see for a while with Bill Nighy, and then uh, Web of the Spider with Klaus Kinski was something that I had talked about doing with for the blog, for the countdown to Halloween, and it got bumped. And but I still want to cover it. I think it would fit into Dread Media. So uh, that's what I got coming up. What about you? Well, in January we both attended Panic Fest. We saw Zombie at uh, the new 4K restoration. Yes. We mentioned that earlier, I believe. Not classic horror, but I also saw a couple of other movies and wrote about them for Boom Howdy, so you can read those reviews there. Coming up, and we'll probably talk more about it in March, but we're going to be guesting, as we have in previous years, on the Nightmare Junkhead podcast yes. in their March Madness countdown, I guess, or, or competition, and the year is 1979. So we don't know yet what movies we'll be talking about, but we do know... The, I guess, Elite Eight. Yeah. And we'll be talking about the final four when we get down there. So looking forward to that. That's always a great time. Oh, yeah. A lot of fun. 
I was going to say, I, I totally forgot that at the end of the month is the Kansas Silent Film Festival. And on the first night they are playing, I think I may have mentioned this last month, they're playing Frankenstein, the 1910 Edison version, the restored version, which looks amazing compared to the version we've been seeing for so many years. Uh, a better print was discovered. And uh, the restored and extended edition uh, of Metropolis. We'll be playing those on the opening night uh, with, of course, live music accompaniment. So plan on attending the Silent Film Festival this year. That's always a good time, and it's always fun when they show something genre-related. And I know the version they're going to be playing of Metropolis is the two-plus-hour version. Uh, there's even going to be an intermission for it. And it, the fact that you've got live music accompaniment uh, the uh, Montalto Orchestra, I believe, or I think is that's the, the orchestra that's coming. Anyway, um, that should be a lot of fun. That's at the end of the month. I need to get those dates from you to see maybe if I can tag along. I would love for you to tag along. Yeah, we're not spending the night. So uh, I know we're going both Saturday or Friday night and Saturday night because they do a dinner on Saturday night where they have a guest speaker come in and did that for the first time last year. It was a lot of fun, and I won prizes. I won books. You know, I, I don't have enough of those. So um, that was a lot of fun. And it's free. I mean, it's all free. And, and they do a good presentation. And I love seeing silent films with live music and thought being put into the music to make sure that it correlates to what you're seeing on the screen, which makes all the difference when you're watching classic silent films. The last thing I'll mention that I'm doing in February is my brother and I are going to New York for a theater trip. And we are going to see the... Broadway spectacle that is King Kong. So I'm sure next month I'll have some stuff to say about that. And that kind of leads into possibly what we're doing next month. Yeah, it does. It does. We, we uh, you know, we've got lots of ideas for, for what we want to do. And uh, so we just kind of wing it a little bit. Sometimes there's thought as far as correlating to birth months, death months, what have you. I don't know if there's any connection to the month of March on this one, but we thought about doing a fun episode I guess, Britain Under Siege, taking a look at three films where giant creatures just tear the heck out of jolly old England. Next month, we are going to be doing The Giant Behemoth, Conga, and Gorgo. It has been a long time since I've seen any of those films. Maybe I've seen The Giant Behemoth recently, but it's been a while since I've seen Gorgo and Conga, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing those three big giant creature movies that sometimes get lost in all the King Kong Godzilla shuffle. They you know, certainly you don't hear enough about those movies as much. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Conga. I just love, I can't wait to talk about that and tell you my first experience watching that. Also with what's going on in Britain, under siege, I guess perhaps it's appropriate. I don't I, know. I, I don't really I, understand I, Brexit, and I, I, you know, that's that's a good tie-in. Yeah, we've got some good stuff coming up and in forthcoming months, and uh, next month we'll we'll head over to jolly old England and, and watch them battle the beasts. Until then, let's remind everyone that they can call in and leave feedback at six one six six four nine two five eight two. That's six four nine club. Also visit our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And you know what? We, we've made some jokes in the last part of the show about my birthday and gifts and all that. You know what I really want is for my birthday is everyone that listens to rate us on iTunes. Uh, that would be a wonderful Nothing gift. would make me happier. I, I would really appreciate that. 
So we're gonna leave with a song a little more standard. People probably know it. Don't know that I ever realized, but Lon Chaney is mentioned in a whole verse of this song. I'm talking about Werewolves of London by the great Warren Zevon. I don't know that I've actually well, known that Lon Chaney was mentioned. I'm sitting here trying to think, and I'm like... You're going to hear it now. We're going to start right there about that part. This is from the 1992 album Excitable Boy, Werewolves of London. Until next time, thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Well, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the queen Doing the werewolves of London I saw Lon Chaney Jr. walking with the queen Doing the werewolves of London I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's And his hair was perfect 